to do the staff presentation. Um, yeah, thank you, Lisa. Um, good evening, Chair Saheba and um, Planning Board members. I'm Lisa Foster, Senior Transportation Coordinator for the City of Alameda. And I just wanted to let you all know that on March 23rd, the city is launching the new Alameda um, Parking Enforcement Service. This moves most parking enforcement from police department to public works, and it focuses on parking as a service as part of the transportation system. It also means improved enforcement of meters and time limits on Park Street and Webster Street. So that's why we're making an effort to get that word out. We don't want to surprise people because that has not been very focused on during the pandemic. I also wanted to let you know, we have a couple of public um, engagement workshops coming up. On May 12th, we have our Willie Stargell Avenue Complete Street Project virtual community workshop at 6.30. And um, we have an online survey for that as well. And then the Clement Avenue Extension Tilden Way Project has a virtual community workshop on May 18th and an in-person open house on May 19th. And we have a survey for that. We also have surveys open for the Lincoln Marshall Pacific Improvement Project, as well as the Grand Street Pavement Resurfacing and Safety Improvement Project. If you go to alamedaca.gov slash transportation, you'll see in the projects um, uh, section, uh, web pages for all of these. And you can also join our mailing list at alamedaca.subscribe. Okay, great. Thank you for the announcement. Since uh, this is just an announcement, we won't be discussing on it. I just have a quick question. What was the oh, okay. date for the enforcement? You said March, but I'm thinking you meant May. Oh. My apologies, yes, May. May meaning starting today or um, just the May month 23rd. of May? Oh, May 23rd, okay, great. Thank you, thank you for the update. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, um, we'll move to our regular agenda items. Uh, agenda item 7A, this is to consider a design review for fire tower beautification project at the Clubhouse Memorial Road and Island Drive at the front doorsteps of Carica Park. Um, the applicant, Greenway Golf Associates, uh, will there be a presentation? Yes, President Saheba. I uh, okay. Alan Tai, City Planner. I would like to introduce uh, Amy Woodridge, our Recreation and Parks Director, for a quick oral presentation. And then I believe the applicant team um, also has a presentation as well. Yes. Good evening, Chair and Board Members. Um, Amy Woodridge, Recreation and Parks Director. Um, I'm just going to give you some brief background, uh, and then the bulk of the presentation will be by the Greenway Golf Team uh, on their uh, design for the fire tower. Um, so the fire tower area we're discussing is approximately a half acre at the corner of Island Drive and Clubhouse Memorial Road. It's the entranceway to uh, Creeka Park. Uh, Greenway Golf is in a long-term lease with the city for improvement, operation, and maintenance of the Creeka Park Golf Complex. Um, so in 20, late 2020, Greenway Golf determined that it would be beneficial to its operations at Creeka Park to renovate the fire tower and the surrounding area. Um, outside that, this entryway and, and to provide a more aesthetic entry. So the, the city entered, in, the Greenway requested and the city um, negotiated and we, we finalized the lease amendment 
that is attached as part of your staff report. It's the second lease amendment to their long-term lease. And the purpose of that amendment was to transfer the responsibility of this half acre area to Greenway so it could improve the area. And that, again, that area includes both the area around it as well as the fire tower itself. Um, so that amendment was approved by city council in 2020, June, 2021. And it does require both the review and recommendation by the golf commission, as well as then being submitted to you, the planning board for final review and approval. Um, I know there's been some questions about that and, and that's because it's part of the lease uh, amendment um, that it come to you as a planning board for your final approval. Um, the process is the Greenway first conducted per the agreement, uh, the required structural and hazardous materials assessments. Um, so with a certain uh, required structural improvements and hazardous material abatement, uh, Greenway's consultants determined that the fire tower structure could remain standing and the city concurred, concurred with that report and determination. Um, it's important to note, this is not a historical structure that was looked into. Um, and there, I, I, I've raised this because the, the question has been raised by, by neighbors um, recently in, in, in your public comment uh, as, to what, as to why this tower um, is planned to remain standing and, and, and a request by the neighbors to remove it. So just wanted to give you the background that to do so to remove it would require a joint decision per the, the lease agreement. Um, by both the city and Greenway um, to determine that it should be removed. Um, so, and to wrap up at its April uh, meeting, the Golf Commission did review the beautification plan presented that you'll see tonight by Greenway Golf. Um, they did unanimously recommend denial of the design. Um, through their discussion, the concerns are raised that were in your staff report. Um, and so since you'll be hearing mostly from Greenway, uh, I'll let their presenters address those concerns. Um, but on a high level, um, the, the concerns were the inaccessibility of the landscaped area around the fire tower that, and concern that the, uh, there was no public access and that there was a large gate plan that appeared as the largest design component of the project. Um, and currently the area is fenced on three sides and has a low two to three foot retaining wall on Island Drive side. Um, the exhibits from the lease agreement that, that also are attached to the staff report um, show that low retaining wall remaining. Um, but with the other fences removed for view through to the golf course. The current proposal um, is, is to, to keep those fences in place. Um, another concern was the public art component originally was planned as, as uh, a mural um, and the commission felt that a, a mural would still be appropriate on the, on the blank side of the tower, which faces the golf course. Um, the, the HOA um, for Harbor Bay, uh, the Harbor, Community of Harbor Bay Isle Association um, did review this with um, well reviewed a previous design um, with that was it, that's the exhibit to the lease agreement with Greenway Golf and and they were not fans of of a large mural facing Island Drive they wanted something more simplistic um, similar as what's before you um, and then lastly the commission had some concerns regarding the landscape design which is planned as planters on decomposed granite over the existing asphalt. Um, with sections cut in the asphalt for trees. And so they, and they had expressed a, a, an interest to remove the asphalt. So overall, we are seeking input from the planning board on, on this design and I'm more than happy to answer any questions. And with that, I'm gonna pass it to Greenway Golf for their presentation.
Okay, so hi, I'm Tracy Craig, and I'm here on behalf of Greenway. And first of all, thank you, Amy, for um, the excellent recap of, of sort of the history of this structure. Um, with me tonight, I've got two people. I've got Umesh Patel, who is the president and chief, chief, uh, chief executive officer, I guess I would say, of Greenway Gulf. And then also Zach Wald, who has helped a lot with planning this design. Um, I do have a short presentation that I'd like to put up and I just wanna make sure I can share my screen. Um, I believe, can you, can you all see that? Is that- Yes, like a yes. I, I don't know what to do with this thing on the side. So let me see if I can. I am. I have become a Zoom expert. I just have to say that. So let me back up to the beginning of my presentation. Um, if you let me, let me just, there we go. Okay. So um, first of all, so hi, Tracy Craig. I'll be running you through a very short presentation, probably just five or 10 minutes. Zach and I will be doing that. Um, first, I'd like though, Umesh Patel to just introduce himself to you um, and just give you a little bit of background on Corica Park and his mission and vision um, for the golf course that um, we'd like to share just to give this some context and then we'll get into the actual presentation itself. Is that okay? I, okay, I'm gonna assume that the silence is approval. Um, so Mesh, if you would just introduce yourself and um, discuss what your vision is for the golf course, that would be great. Good evening, Chair Sahiba and members of the board. Uh, thank you for having the Greenway team here this evening. We are, we are excited to, to beautify this space, which sits at the front of the golf courses, at the entrance of the golf courses. Over the past nine years, we have spent uh, a fair amount of time beautifying and restoring the golf courses, uh, the three golf courses that sit behind the tower. And we felt that we wanted to renovate and beautify and invest in this spire tower and the space around it. So we had an entrance uh, that was befitting of the golf courses behind it. So that was the genesis of why we approached the city and went through the Second Amendment. We're here this evening because we think we have a design that works and works well with what we're trying to achieve and what the intent of the Second Amendment was. And so we are excited to present this design and this vision, uh, and we ask for your approval uh, this evening. My, my vision at Kalika Park is, is to make it the best municipal facility it can be. We have a special parcel and we have some very special golf courses and we are using the space in all sorts of different ways for the community. And our vision at Kalika Park is that you know, golf course space should be uh, open space for everyone and it should be sustainable financially, environmentally, socially. And so we are running programs and doing collaborations that speak to that. Uh, but tonight our focus is obviously the fire tower and how we think that space, and as you'll see from the presentation, can go from what it is to what we think it can be. Thank you again, and we'll be here for questions. Okay. I'll turn it over to you, Tracy. Thank you so much. So on the right-hand side of the screen is this gorgeous building as it currently stands. I'm sure probably everybody here has driven by it at one time or the other. Um, as Amy mentioned, Greenway has 
a second amendment to their lease and at their cost would like to rehab this structure and um, also put in pollinator gardens and some other things. And we'll show you exactly what that is. But I think the important thing here really to note before we get into this is that Greenway is doing this as their cost to try to improve the entrance to this and also to improve it for passersby because it's really not a very attractive building. And then um, secondarily, um, we would love to get your approval tonight and we, if it needs to be a conditional approval based on some of the issues that the Golf Commission um, raised, we are happy to study those, but we have a very, very short time frame to get this done. For the lease, we need to get it done by September 2022. Um, so we would like to get that approval so we could get moving on this because quite frankly, if we don't do this, this building is probably going to sit there for another 20 or 30 years um, and become more dilapidated. So Amy um, took you through the timeline quite, quite efficiently. The one thing that I do wanna call out um, is we had to do a hazardous materials assessment on this building. That was due um, on September 30th and we, the city agreed on November 24th that that building could remain standing. Um, we talked with the city and asked for an extension, a 90 day extension to come up with the design in January, simply because I think all of you as design professionals understand that it takes some time to come up with a beautification project, come up with potentially a mural. And we wanted some more time to do that, particularly with COVID and um, contractors being so busy. We didn't get that extension. So then we moved very, very quickly to come up with this design in the time, in the time frame that we had and also come up with a design that we quite like. We think it's elegant and um, understated, which is what the community around the area asked for. And most importantly, it's something that can be done in the time space, time space specified in our lease, which says that we have to get this done by September um, of this year. So I'm not gonna read all of that because I don't like slides being read to me and I'm sure everybody feels the same way. Um, so our second amendment was um, we submitted a design proposal. By, it says we have to submit, the, we had to submit the design proposal by March 21st. As I said, we're contractually required to complete that work by September 30th. And per the second amendment language, and I think this is important, we needed to submit this to the Golf Commission for its review and recommendation. As Amy said, we were the Golf Commission, Commission didn't a vote to approve our design. And very unfortunately in my estimation, um, Amy talked about why we'll get into that a little bit more and how we, we'd like to counter what we can do to address their concerns and still move this project forward. But first we'd like to show you the design, if that's okay. Um, and then I think I'm going to give this over to my colleague, Zach Wald, to just talk about existing conditions and then exactly um, what we're proposing. We'll show you some pictures that juxtapose what we have now against what we're proposing. And then we'll wrap it up by talking um, about the input we, we received from the neighboring community as well as the golf course. And you are welcome at any time to interrupt us with questions because we want this to be a fruitful exchange. Okay, Zach? Thank you, Tracy. Of course. Uh, and thank you, Chair Sahiba, and also thank you, uh, Planning Commission members. Uh, just the quick background on on me: I was a I'm an urban design professional. I was in I worked in the city of Oakland for 20 years, um, and I'm very happy to be working on a um, with a company that has has the kind of values that I share environmentally and socially. 
Um, I think that uh, what I wanted to walk you through quickly is our thinking, our sort of design evolution on the um, fire tower. And first of all, I wanted to let you know that most of the credit for our design goes to April Phillips. Um, I imagine that this commission's uh, familiar with April Phillips design. She is the arch landscape architect who just completed the latest uh, waterfront park down at the um, Naval, at the, at the base. Um, and it's a really lovely park. It opened up a couple, couple months ago, I think. Hopefully you've all been there. Anyway, um, we, we enlisted her help because we knew that she knew Alameda and uh, the type of improvements that people who live on the island um, want to see. Um, basically, the first thing we had to do was determine, does the building stand or does the building go? Um, and when we, we, we didn't know and the city didn't know when we signed this lease. Um, and so we hired a structural engineer. They looked at it. This thing is bomb proof. It's going nowhere. Um, it is structurally extremely sound. Uh, there are some issues with asbestos remediation, uh, but it's, it's extremely sound. So, um, so that, that, that made it very clear to us, and you, because that was the agreement with the city, that the building must stand. Um, I'm happy about that personally, and um, I'll show you why. Uh, I know that there are some members of the community who are unhappy about that, but it's, that's a decision that's outside of our hands. Um, so now we, we, we knew once the building was gonna stand that it became a beautification project rather than just a gardening project. So also a, a renovation of the, of the building. Uh, could I have the next slide, please? Tracy, may, can you switch to the next slide for me, please? Yes, I'm trying. Hang on here. I don't know what's going on. Okay, guys, hang on. I might have to. There you go. Thank you so much. So as I mentioned, uh, we hired April Phillips, who's a wonderful landscape architect, who's, who's done other, a lot of work in Alameda and, and all over the country, really. And um, she basically came up with this uh, marvelous pollinator garden plan with the idea that we would be planting um, uh, natives and plants that would benefit and be beneficial to everyone's gardens around Bay Farm Island in Alameda and, uh, and the, the things that grow in the, in the creeks and watersheds around the uh, golf course. And so it'd be pretty to look at from the street and also from the driveway entrance um, and also sort of functional in that way, biologically uh, functional. And so we think she came up with a very beautiful design and we're thrilled to keep working with her to um, complete that design. Uh, it involves um, planter, uh, raised planter boxes for the most part um, on uh, crushed granite over the existing asphalt uh, with some cutouts for trees and uh, an overall beautification. I mean, obviously this is, the, this is something that Bay Farm Islands residents drive by and other residents. And it's also the entrance to the golf course that we've just taken and, and taken 36 out of 45 holes and made absolutely gorgeous. So we want this to be absolutely gorgeous too and, and notable. Um, the initial design concept uh, for the, for that, we, that, that was put together, um, you know, the garden looked a little different for sure. Um, but I, I, don't I, I don't think it was meant as a, um, to be a constraint on on what we were doing as much as a, you know, hey, we wanna, we wanna make this pretty, basically. Um, could I have the next slide, please, Tracy? 
Yeah, Saki, uh, I think there's just one thing I did want to highlight. Originally, we had talked about putting a mural um, on yeah, the building. I want to get to that in a second. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Yeah. So my computer seems to be a little slow today. So that's okay. I'll start talking about the mural. So the other thing that, you know, the garden was a little different in the sort of original idea sketch. And there was a mural that was a trompe l'oeil, meaning that um, the thought at the time was this building may or may not come down, but if it stays up, it's ugly as sin. Let's paint a bunch of fake architectural details on it and make it look kind of cutesy. I, um, from the first time I saw the mural, that mural was was not thrilled about it. But what really, but I, but I felt like, okay, this is you know this is sort of charming. And then and then I heard that the residents of Bay Farm Island didn't want to see a kind of colorful you know mural popping you know eye popping thing. And then here's the best part, and I, and I want to do this with an invitation to all of you all. Um, I got to go inside the fire tower and behind each of those um, sort of wooden uh, barriers that are right now in front of the windows that make the fire tower look like an ugly concrete block are beautiful, historic wood mullioned windows. And the craziest part about it is they're in perfect condition, almost every single one of them. So there are gi there's giant fenestration all over this thing that is the original wood. Um, so that's, I was like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. And then, so there's windows, there's doors. And then there's even um, sort of an in and out on, the concrete isn't even just a flat surface. It has a kind of uh, a bend in and a, and a bend out. And what I started to realize was, actually this is, and, and then I, the other notable item is the fire escape which it looks like a rusty old you know, mess from the outside right now, but really it is a hand-built historic fire escape that if it was treated right, could be absolutely a wonderful architectural detail. So personally, I, I found that we had a building on our hands with quite a bit of really pretty architectural detail that had been left you know, by the city for 20 years. And with a little effort on our part, we could make it really pretty and it's an iconic building, of course. You know, it has a historic uh, sort of reference point in Alameda history as a fire tower. And I know that there are still some people in the community who are not convinced. They still want to see this thing come down. But I would really ask you uh, for the chance to give us the chance to convince them. Um, Tracy, is it possible to go to the next slide? Okay. Awesome. Okay, so this is just a general view after beautification. And again, we've cleaned the paint up, we've opened up all the windows, we're, you know, cleaned up the windows, we put in our pollinator garden, we've put in our trees, um, you know, we've cleaned everything up, including the, the fire escape. And all of a sudden you have a building that's, you know, rather than an eyesore, it's kind of an iconic building, it's pretty, and the garden's pretty too. And it makes a, a really cute entrance to, the, um, to a, a really wonderful golf course as well as a, you know, a not certainly inoffensive um, and much better than what's there now, something to drive by. Um, so, and, and there's, there's one other point that I wanna make, and this is why we're, we're thank you, Tracy. This is, uh, this is why we're, um, there's one other point I wanted to make. Yeah, if you could go to the next one with the, uh, with the murals on it. So we understood that there were some people, could you go to the one with the murals on it, Trace? There you go. This is it. So, so there were some people who were upset that we didn't take this facade, which which um, faces the street, and you know do a trompe l'oeil mural that made it look like a kind of cutesy firehouse with like brick and stuff like that. And then there were some people really happy, right? Because 
um, they didn't want to see a bunch of bright colors. And um, so what we we tried to come up we 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 what we loved about that original thing was we loved the idea that there was art involved. So we we love we like the building. We think we can make it pretty and attractive. And this is a view that I think is from the street. But we also want to include arts artists from Alameda and art. And so. Our proposal is to do within the windows, since you're not gonna really kind of be looking inside the structure, you're gonna wanna see the beautiful fenestration, but within the windows and, and potentially sort of uh, lit up a little bit would be, um, would be some uh, art posters essentially, uh, that would be a rotating kind of art show uh, that would speak to the history of Alameda, that would speak to the sustainability of the golf course and what we're trying to do, the mission, and, and the values of Alameda and, and would speak also to the culture and, and the, the fire tower history, right? I mean, this to basically honor firefighters, which is a, a wonderful thing to do, but it'd be rotating so that we can really get a number of artists around Alameda involved in thinking about, hey, how can I make something that's not garish, that's not huge and overwhelming to the eyes, but that, is, that speaks to the history of Alameda and that's interesting to passersby, whether they're walking or driving. So, so that that that's our proposal for that. Could could I have the different angles of the tower, please, Tracy? Like the different view, the four views. So, and then here here are the four views of the tower. The one with the gate is the one that you would pass as you um, go down the driveway to Kurika Golf Course. Um, the one with the um, the elevation with the uh, with the um, vines along it. Is, would, is what you would see um, from, from the golf course, from the second tee of the new golf course. Our idea is you're looking out over this vast expanse of really beautiful stuff when you're, when you're teeing off. You're seeing grass, you're seeing creeks, you're seeing old trees along the creeks. At that point, it's nice to have something that blends in. Again, there's, people can agree to disagree on whether, what, if that's the best treatment or if there's another one. We thought it would be kind of garish. I think it would be kind of garish to put a, a mural, you know, facing right there, all of a sudden like this big painted thing, but maybe it would be great, you know? But e either way, what, we're, what we've proposed is a heck of a lot better than what people are looking at right now. And we're offering to, we, we would very much like to get it done by September because we're obligated by our lease to do that. And there are no improvements that happen. I worked in Oakland for 20 years. There are no improvements like this that happen that quickly, but we're gonna do it. So please take us at our word that we're gonna make a, a nice, pretty, lovely entrance and we're gonna get it done for you by September. Can, can I have the last slide, um, Tracy, the one where we talk about the community comments? Yeah, and, and if you don't mind, Zach, I'm gonna chime in on the community portion. Please so, um this is, we, as Amy said, we took this to the Golf Commission and um, they didn't approve this. And I think maybe some of you know, there's a lot going on right now between um, Greenway Golf and the city. And we'd like to put that aside and have you focus on what we're here for tonight, which is to get approval um, of this beautification project that we could get done by September. Um, one, and I just wanna point out to Amy's point what the Golf Commission um, had exception with. One commissioner did, did want to see a mural on the backside of it. One commissioner was concerned about the salinity of water in the plants. And as we said, we're working with a local 
um, landscape designer. She's very well versed in picking plants that can deal with the salinity of the water that we're using, as well as we're running a golf course out there and keeping it green. So I think that we can pick the right kind of plants that will um, not just look good out there, but thrive out there and also attract the kind of insect life that we want to pollinate other areas. Um, public access, that's a big question, right? This, the second amendment did not talk about public access. That's a bigger question than I think that we can address tonight given the time frame we're in. We are willing to study public access, but we also wanna be cognizant of things like graffiti, vandalism, litigation, um, what happens after hours, all of ADA access. None of that is in our second amendment. So we'd like to, um, we're willing to look at that, but that's really not what we're here tonight to discuss because we understand that that might be an issue, but it's a bigger issue that we can take on tonight with folks. And then finally, the crushed, grass, gra uh, crushed gravel over asphalt. Another big question, we're willing to look at that. There's obviously some environmental issues that I think that we need to address simply because this was a fire tower and there were probably things used, but we're willing to look at something um, that would please everybody. So that's another area we're willing to study, um, but we'd still like to get going on rehabbing the building. Finally, we did present this to Harbor Bay, who represents 3,000 homeowners in the area. Um, feedback we got, they really liked the gar garden. Um, one board member, <clears throat> excuse me, uh oh, wait, sorry about that, guys. Clearly, I am so not versed at the, at the uh, Zoom. One, one board member wants to have the building serve some purpose. We would actually at some point like to see that building serve some purpose too, but again, too fast to try to determine what we need to do, right? And I think anybody that knows that's gone through a project, we can't figure out what to do and get people in that building and rehab the inside. So we're thinking, let's figure it, let's rehab the outside, make it look good and work together as a community to figure out the other issues. Um, and then I think the overarching message that we heard from a lot of folks is most people would really prefer that this work get done now rather than have this tower sit there um, becoming more dilapidated and more of an eyesore for all of Alameda. Um, so I think, and I think everybody, including all of you folks probably agree with that. Um, and I really think, you know, that's it. But when we're talking, I think I'm gonna leave this up because this is our money shot, right? Um, so we're happy to take any kind of questions you want. Umesh has come specifically tonight to address any questions you have, and Zach and I are here as well. Um, and we really thank you for your time and consideration this evening. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Okay, great. Who's thank, first? Thank, thank, yeah, no, thank you for the presentation. We'll, we'll go you to bet. board questions and clarifications and we'll open it up for public um, comments. And then we will go to um, board deliberations. So uh, if you'd like to ask a question on this item, as far as the board goes, please raise your hand. We'll start with board member Curtis. Uh, thank you very much. I have, I have two questions. Uh, one, um, you said you weren't given an extension. Why weren't you, what would happen if you didn't have the thing complete? Then what happened? I mean, if we had been, if we had give, been given an extension. No, you said you can't get an extension. Is that actually a fact that if you don't get it done by the by September, the whole project goes kaput? Wow, that's a question we've been struggling with, and I'm wondering, um, Umesh, can you? Yes. Hear that? Yeah. 
Yeah. I can actually speak to that as well. Member Curtis, uh, we did request an extension because we had been guided by the city that we would be given one. We weren't then. And we were then notified that we were in default of our lease because we would not be completing the Second Amendment. And we were given 60 days on January 21st to submit a design. And so that created a bit of a rush on our part, to be honest. And uh, we submitted that design on, event on March 21st as per the requirements of the city. As to why we weren't given that extension, I can't speak to that, but I'll let Amy speak to that. So the city, the Greenway Golf asked for a 90-day extension. The city provided a 60-day extension for the design. Um, what we haven't discussed yet with Greenway, but we've discussed internally is um, there are some assumptions being made here. If, if this design is not approved, if it is, it would move forward and they would have until September 30th to, to complete the construction per the agreement. And, and I'll just say too, this, I mean, the schedule that was created was given to us by Greenway that was built into the lease agreement. Um, if it's not approved tonight, then we would be able to administratively, we, we wouldn't ex expect um, construction to happen if they don't have a design that's approved. So we would take the same timeframes of the lease agreement. They were originally given three months for design and originally given six months for construction. And we would provide that. So there would be another three months to redesign and bring it back if that's what the planning board so, uh, so directs. Uh, and then six months from there. So um, it, it wouldn't make sense for us to hold them to construction timeline when they don't have an approved city design. Thank you. I have one more question. Um, you said that you, you cannot take down the building. Has the city prohibited you from raising the building? The building is an eyesore as it is. And, and as, as, as Mr. Wall did in his presentation, which I thought was quite good, um, you know, the, 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 the fix is cutesy, but this is an eyesore out of scale and really would best serve the community to be raised, in my opinion. So the question is, is the city prohibiting you from raising the building? No, the, the Second Amendment spoke to city and us coming to a joint agreement as to what was best for the building. But I think it's important to stress that the only scenario in which we would take the building down was if the building was structurally unsound or if there was some other issue. When our, uh, our folks did all the study, they found a very strong building. Uh, and so our recommendation to the city was, this is a building that can stand and we recommend it stands and the city concurred. Uh, we, we agree with you, it is an eyesore. It's an eyesore right at our entrance, but we think it has a huge amount of potential uh, and we think this design brings out the very best of a building uh, rather than demolishing a building uh, with no complete and obvious alternative use for that half acre at the front of our golf course. So we think the building has potential and it may well have some form of a future use. It's a historic building and uh, we, we would prefer, given our own environmental ethos, to not demolish something that we have standing at the moment and can stand. So the decision was made on what's good for the building, not necessarily what's good for the community. I think it's good for the community. I think it's a wonderful building and I don't see how, again, taking that building away serves the community any better than, than beautifying it. 
Yeah, I would, I would also say that there was an article that, because I thought it wasn't so pretty either, but then I started reading up on these fire towers and there was an article in the Alameda Sun about um, how this building came to be built and um, that it was such a proud moment for Alameda, that it was used as a training facility. And I think maybe with some kind of um, interpretive sign or something people could understand and, and maybe look at this building a bit differently and not like just this ugly eyesore, um, which it currently is. So um, if you'd like, I'd be happy to, to forward that article to you. Thank you. And thank sure, you for course. answering my question. Thank you for your questions. Okay. And are we uh, calling on people or I'm thinking the chair? No, I, I, good. Okay. Yes, I, I will. Uh, chair Saheba, may staff make a point of clarification? I think there was mentioned uh, yes. from the previous speaker that this is a historic building. This is not a designated yeah. historic building in the city. That's my understanding too. Thanks for clarifying that. So, so board member Curtis, just to be clear, this is not a historic building. Okay, let's go to uh, board member Rothenberg. So thank you for the presentation and the uh, materials and the thought that went into the process. So following on from um, board member Curtis's uh, question and your discussion, at first, I had three questions. So first to the um, decision to keep and beautify the structure, the staff report says, I'm reading from background, as requested by section 4A of the second amendment, Greenway evaluated the structural integrity and assessed the presence of hazardous materials on or within the fire tower. And uh, with the recommendation to keep and beautify these reports were provided to the city and the city concurred. Um, so my reading, so with regard to that, my reading of the terms, uh, it, it, I don't have it open, but I recall, I recall that the amendment said that there was a choice to keep it or demolish it without any particular conditions of keeping it and demolishing it. And so, I, I wanted to ask you, what was the basis of recommending to keep it? Did you, it, it was your previous explanation, well, it's, it, it's, it has merit and we should keep it. And, and before you answer, I'll just add my, an anecdote that uh, keeping a building just to keep it, which is empty and, and, and could be a public hazard as well as a public benefit is something worthy of uh, consideration. So can you just recap for us the basis on which you recommended the city to the city not to demolish it, but rather to keep? And then I'll ask the other two questions. Sure. So our, our understanding in the second amendment when we negotiated with the city back in 2021 was that if the, if the building was sound, structurally sound, then we would keep the building standing. The, the negotiations we had with the city did not speak to demolishing the building if the building was not sound. And so, hence my answer to the earlier, uh, earlier question was that that's where our recommendation came from. We do think that going forward, this building may have some community use. We obviously haven't explored that given our time constraints, but we think the building does have some potential future use uh, and so 
our recommendation was that we would beautify it in the first instance and then move forward with seeing how we could potentially mm. use this building. I see. So just to, just to further clarify slightly, in the staff report under public access, it where uh, and speaking to the questions by the, the golf commission about the the gate, it says the landscaped area is uh, around the tower is inaccessible, and the commission felt that the gate, which excludes access, is the largest design component. Greenway's response was that the Second Amendment, which stipulates requirements for the tower's beautification does not require access to the area. So, and stating concerns about safety and access. So is there a concern about safety and access to the, at the empty building that would be preserved and beautified? So I think, I think it's important kind of how we define access. So for, for us, when, when I speak to access now, I, I think of being able to use that uh, space for some kind of community gathering, community event. I think when the Golf Commission was speaking to access, they were speaking to general access 24-7 as if it was a park. And so our thought is we want to explore the uses of the building and the mm -hmm. space around it, but we are not in a position for all the various reasons Tracy mentioned to create 24-7 public access, effectively, essentially a park uh, and that, that was never uh, the intention or the design of the Second Amendment. I see. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Then just, just to confirm, the, I, haven't, I have not built, been on the golf course, even though I've lived here a while, I don't play golf. It, it is, is the golf course and that area not accessible to the public generally? We can just see it, but we can't go in? That, that, as it stands now, there is a fence okay. around oh. three sides of that half-acre parcel. Uh, uh, and the gate would be on one of those sides, and I then see. the fourth side has a retaining wall. But please do come visit us at the uh, golf course. I, I, I surely will. So just two other brief questions with regard to the, the terms. Usually, I don't want to generalize uh, speaking to the staff, but you, usually the terms with the city are very particular and specific as to compliance with codes, all codes, regulations, and ordinances of the city. So in regard to the mural, the, the terms in your amendment specifically say a mural, but usually when the city um, has, when there's art, uh, public art in a private work that the city approves, it's uh, subject to the city's um, uh, public art ordinance, chapter 13. And, and similarly with sustainable design, most of the city um, terms require conformance with the um, uh, design standards in the city's climate action and resiliency plan and the green building programs. And, I, I, and so with the regard to those two things, what, what was the building not, is the building, if it, if it has art subject to the public art uh, ordinance and then B in regard to sustainable design and the comment of the Gulf Commission about um, asphalt. You know, asphalt is not permeable generally, and putting putting decomposed granite on top of asphalt makes it even worse. So, in terms of sustainability, it, it's it's sort of a self defeating proposal. So, 
why don't you just address how you would if even though it's not explicit how you would comply with the city's ordinances for public art and uh, green infrastructure in the proposal that you put before us and that's the end of my questions and thank you for the thoughtful answers i'm not, I'm not sure uh, commissioner rothenberg if, if you were looking for an answer from amy or from uh, umash or if i can jump in it, it's it's totally up to you okay well just with regards to the um crushed gravel um the 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 golf course represents a hundreds of acres of open space, including the management of a lot of waterways. And we've successfully in the last few years reduced the water usage at the golf course by 95%. We've taken the ponds at the golf course, which I would love to show you, and which used to be a dumping ground for the city of Alameda. They would, whenever there would be a, a public works project with a concrete, extra concrete, they would just drive the truck up to the ponds and dump the, the concrete in there. We've taken those and we've made them deep enough with and, and um, viable enough that there's now a really healthy sort of biological life cycle going on there. We've even had um, um, animals come from the bay, crawl over the golf course and go into the, into the ponds to take giant fish out. So um, we're very, we're very intimate with, on a daily basis, the sort of water um, issues. And while it's true that a permeable surface isn't um, isn't the most sustainable, this is this is an existing impermeable surface. And there's a few reasons why we think it makes more sense not to pull up the the asphalt. Uh, first of all, this was a this was a fire um, for many many years. This was an active fire. Uh, uh, training facility. And so we don't know what's under the asphalt, first of all. Um, and so capping a, um, you know, whatever is, is under there is a pretty normal practice. And this is already capped. So uncapping it could, uh, could be opening Pandora's box. We don't, we don't know. And, um, and that's, that's, that's one reason why, um, you know, that we don't think that's, that's um, the most uh, advisable scenario. Um, the- but Zach, I would say this. I would say that April is studying this. So we're happy to, I don't think we have the ultimate answer for you tonight, but I do believe that April's studying this um, and we can we can report back to you folks. I, certainly, that's, that seems responsible, but just, just to offer, I, I, I'm not just um, uh, trying to give you a hard time. I'm. No, I'm, no. Refer I'm referring to the third bullet on page two of the staff report where the commission was not satisfied. And they asked why, I'm reading, they asked why the existing asphalt was not being removed. And you say why it's not being removed. And then you say sections would be cut into the asphalt for trees to root into the ground. So as a person who is, is, is in the business of cutting holes and cleaning up messy stuff that people buried, I, I, I get your point about not knowing what's down there, but you're proposing to do it anyway. So the, que the, the, the question is, and I, I understand you're studying it, but the question speaks to the commission's um, denial of, uh, of which included the basis, this, this particular basis for the landscape design. Yeah, and, and, and as Tracy said, we can, I mean, we'll, we'll explore whether it's possible to do. The, the other um, 
beauty of the crust gravel is that it really maintains flexibility for future community use. Um, so, you know, you have a hard surface, you've got the, the planters, one can easily imagine tables and chairs and community workshops, maybe a wedding. I mean, you, you know, you name it. I don't want to, I don't want to say what it is because I don't want to limit or, or, or say, hey, this is what we're going to do. But it, it really, it's really maximum flexibility for the space and the future and use by the community. Yeah. And then I just think I'd like to just say to your, to your other point was, would we comply with the city ordinance for public art? Um, I, I, I'm assuming, and this is a big assumption, that we would we would work with the city on future art that would be there. And we would have some type of um, way that we would marry that with our website. So any art that we have there, we would also showcase on the website. Um, and our, our overarching goal there is to make it hyper-local and interesting to the community, the golfers, and um, that would be all, yeah. Thank you. Not the best answers for you, but we would really like to have you come out there. If you haven't been out there, one of the things we really are trying to do is make this golf course, not just for golfers, but actually for the whole community to enjoy, which is a sea change with a golf course. Thank you so much. I do, want, I do want to stress and clarify one point there, uh, excellent point about asphalt. We're not cutting into the asphalt. It is planter boxes that we use across the asphalt. The one commission member who did raise these issues, we did, we did clarify with them as well that this was not an asphalt cutting. Simply again, time, uh, cost, and and just being sensible with the entire, um, with the entire site, and being consistent with it. I'd like to, to speak just real quick to the public art requirement um, that I, I have checked with community development um, back when this was even being the concept of it uh, in the when we were negotiating the amendment and, and this public art is not um, under the public art commission's purview uh, because it's it's not on um, I was told because it's not on public land or a, a developer developing it for under the public art ordinance. Uh, could we clarify? It's not, this is not public land. I, I, well, I think, yeah, they said this wasn't applicable under the public art ordinance. So I can certainly get more clarification on that. I don't have the email language directly in front of me, but I'm, I'm happy to get further clarification. But I was told a couple times, did not fall under the public art ordinance. President Saheba, I, I could actually clarify. Yes. Um, so the Thank public you. art ordinance was adopted specifically uh, is it, it's an exaction on development. So if you're building a building in Alameda, you provide public art. In this case, the provision of public art is more of a, a contractual agreement between the city. So it's not development driven. So the, the, uh, the ordinance is not applicable. Okay, thank you for that clarification. All right, let's go to board member Ruiz. Thank you, applicant and um, staff for the presentation and the report. Um, I'm gonna start off with a question similarly along the line of the mural. Um, and this is specifically for our city attorney. Given that um, the second amendment specifically referred to painting a mural um, as part of the requirement. And when the applicant decides not to do the mural, wouldn't that be an amendment to this agreement? 
rather than the design option because they choose not to do the mural. Thank you, um, board member Ruiz. My understanding of the terms of the, the second amendment to the lease are that the parties negotiated the design, you know, the conceptual design. There were terms and a pretty detailed, um, detailed requirements, including some exemplars, some exhibits. So I believe that if they were to stray or want to stray from what was agreed upon by the parties, that um, you know, that's really the outline of what was expected, what both parties were, you know, were expected to do and were expecting to receive when this was entered into. So if there were some sort of major deviation, I think that um, one option would be to um, enter into an amendment and possibly change the terms um, if the parties aren't in agreement with you know, what's being presented now. Okay, because it looks to me that they are trying to deviate from the term by not providing the mural. So, okay, thank you. Um, we, can, we can discuss how to proceed with that, but I just want to ask that question first. Second question is, um, I'm still a little bit, is for the applicant, uh, I'm still a little bit unclear on who will have access to, who will have you, you know, when I say access, being able to use the park, is it, it's gonna be a private open space, physically attached to the golf course, but fenced off with a few parking space in front. And that's a separate question that I have, but the gate will be locked most of the time so who has access to it? So, Master, you know, I, I will say first, I'd like to clarify, um, first of all, just language is important, right? So this mm -hmm. is not a park. Um, so, I just, I, I, I just want to be clear on that because a park sort of denotes um, public access. And right now this is, is blocked off and nobody can get there. Um, we are proposing obviously to rehab the building plant the gardens, um, plant these trees and planter boxes. And we're willing to study um, public access or look at that. But I think there's there's a lot that goes into public access, as you know, there's ADA compliance, there's all I'm kinds of- I'm not talking about things. public access. I'm trying so, to think- oh, so who, who would has, have- Who, who has have, access to it? So, I think uh, that we would, Umesh, do you want to take yeah, that? But so, I believe that we yeah. would have access and we could have public events yeah. there and such. Speaking to, the, speaking to the Second Amendment, this half-acre parcel, which sat outside of the bounds of our lease space, was was rolled into golf course space. So our borders, our tenancy, which extended to about 332 and a half acres, became 333 acres when this half-acre parcel was conjoined into the golf course. Okay. So. It is the access of us as the operator obviously deems what that access is. And a great way to compare it, I think, is we have uh, a driving range. And then at the other end of the driving range, we have this flat green space. It's about a half acre as well, where we can have other people hitting balls on the driving range in the opposite direction. We used that space a few weeks ago for a community event. And we sort of figured out how to have, use that space for a community event. 
So it this become this as per the Second Amendment has become part of the golf course property. Okay. It is not a park. It is not a public access park, just like the rest of our space is not. That, thank you for the clarification. That's what I thought, but I was trying to ascertain that because you that this parcel this half acre parcel is also fenced off it is it from is from the rest of your yeah. own property it 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 is it is uh, it is fenced off from the rest of our space as it stands now uh and and part of that is because it sits right out on the street whereas the rest of our space sits off the street behind our front gate it's also, if you if you look at the course right on the opposite side of the driveway, which is the nine-hole small course, that is also fenced off from public access because it's part of the golf course. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Um, then another question, this is more for um, Amy and for Alan. Um, has the location of the parking stalls right in front of the this parcel, um, being reviewed by Public Works because uh, the these parking spaces seem awfully close to the intersection of Memorial Drive and Island um, Island Drive, and um, usually Public Works do not want to have curb cuts too close to street intersections. Mm -hmm. So has that been reviewed by Public Works? Uh, that's a good point, board member uh, Ruiz. That has not been reviewed by Public Works. Thank you. That's all the questions I have. Uh, thank you, Vice President Ruiz. Uh, let's go to board member Cisneros. Thank you. Um, hopefully just two quick questions. And um, I apologize for um, beating this drum so much by going back to the question about um, demolishing the building. Um, I uh, wanted to just better understand, like, if we were to deny this proposal tonight, um, what would the process look like if we wanted to pursue that path? Like, would we have to make an amendment to um, the lease and bring this back to city council? Um, and then another part to that question is, I'm curious from Greenway's perspective, if there's like um, an expensive price tag related to the demolishment of this building. So um, I'll pause there if anyone wants to answer. Uh, so I'll, I'll um, board member Cisneros, I'll take the first part. Um, so if, and I'll look to the city attorney as well, but my reading of the lease uh, second amendment is that if planning board were to deny and specifically recommend demolishing, which I believe is what you were, what what would it require? Would it require lease amendment? Was that your question to clarify? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if the yes, if the planning board were to deny and recommend demolish, it would not require a lease amendment. Um, the lease um, doesn't prescribe that it remains standing. It simply, in fact, I'll, I had pulled up the language while others were talking just to make sure. Um, let me pull it up one more time. It um, specifically says that it should, that it, it refers to language that the tenant and the city shall jointly determine um, whether renovation is appropriate or to demolish. So um, my reading of it and understanding of it to date is not that it would require city approval, city council um, amendment. 
Uh, as as to your second uh, question, uh, Member Cisnelos, uh, we have not explored the costs of doing any demolition work there. I, my sense is it would be far, far above what we intend to spend beautifying the space. Uh, Greenway, as you can see from the Second Amendment, is fully responsible. Uh, but under the amendment, we are only responsible for demolition if the business, if the building was not sound. Uh, so it would be a renegotiation of some description uh, with city. Okay, thank you so much. And then I do have uh, one more question. That was two parts to my first question. And my second um, question, um, uh, in the presentation, you mentioned how you went to the HOA and it sounded like the majority of the board members um, liked this proposal. Um, uh, it sounded like one of the board members did want the mural, uh, but I just want a clarification that uh, the HOA, like their fees doesn't cover this area. Like their HOA fees is not, like this is not part of their jurisdiction. Like the, the point with that is like going to the surrounding neighbors. Um, that, that is exactly right. And um, they they uh, drive by it every day though. So I think that they see it and say, oh, we need something there. Um, and I just, I, the one thing I'd like to clarify is it was a golf commissioner that talked about the mural. Um, and I think the overarching sentiment was simply, if you can't take it down, we'd like to see something ha happen rather than have it sit there. So, um, and the, I, I would just like to also just, because we were talking about the mural and I think it's important that we get, the, we get this in there, is our original meeting with the HOA way when we were starting this process, um, they saw the mural that was kind of proposed and, you know, it was sort of a mock-up and they said, look at less is going to be more here. We want something that's elegant and befitting of the community. And we don't want, they, they weren't thrilled about a mural. They were more um, asking for something understated. So I just, I wanted to get that out there. Okay. So they didn't actually see this word, this proposal, this design. They did see this proposal. Okay. Yes. We did go back. We did go okay. to them and present this exact proposal to the HOA meeting. Yes, we okay. did. And we have an email that's, that sort of summarizes what we put in our presentation, okay. um, which is what they told us. I think, I think the other thing that I want to stress uh, to Tracy's point is that uh, the one constituency we haven't talked about uh, I, f I feel like we've spent a lot of time on the one commissioner or the other commissioner that had uh, points to make about our design, is that we have 3,000 to 4,000 customers visit Kalika Park every week. And we have overwhelming support from those people, the golfers yes, and our patrons who want to see an improvement at the front of our course, that this, this building, this space is not befitting of the courses we have. And those visitors are an overwhelming support of what we intend to do here. Um, and that's one of the reasons we've taken on the cost and the burden and the time uh, that we've spent uh, to do this, uh, because that's the feedback we get from customers. Um, and, uh, and the HOA wants a very simple understated design, which I think we've provided here. Uh, so I, I just want to put the you know, the actual patrons and customers who drive down the driveway. Uh, we haven't mentioned this evening, but they are also an important part of the community. Okay, thank you, board member Cisneros. Uh, board member Teague, I 
Did you have your hand raised or, or no, no comment? I, I did, but thankfully okay. board member Ruiz asked the exact oh. question that I wanted to an answer to and our city <laughs> attorney answered it. And so I got the information I needed. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, okay, I, I had a few questions um, as well. Uh, first question was, did, did, uh, along the lines of what Vice President Reese talked about on the parking, uh, has, has Greenway studied the impacts of putting parking right at the entry as far as safety goes? Um, any sort of traffic study that's been done with this proposal? Because uh, it, it does look like a challenging place to park and then potentially reverse out when cars are coming in and out of uh, Clubhouse Memorial Road. I think, um, I think that um, parking spaces were for staff originally is what we thought and we can easily take those out. It was just part of the design concept. So we have not studied those formally. We haven't done a traffic, um, any type of traffic analysis or safety analysis, but they can easily come out. Okay, so they're um, understood. And then uh, the other question I have is with the imagery that you've been showing um, in this presentation, there are tables and chairs, and I guess the plan shows it, and there's umbrellas that are proposed in this walled off garden. So uh, I guess you're, you're showing a potential future occupation uh, but the challenge being that it's going to be, well, it'll, it'll be controlled. And I guess there's infrastructure related to that, that you have described that you would look into, into the future. Uh, but the other challenge, which I see, and I had a question about tied into this, which I did bring up in a board meeting earlier this year, specific to um, Clubhouse Memorial Road and, and Carica Park Access, is the fact that there is no sidewalk that connects into the park. Um, it, it, I'm using the term park as far as Karika Park. <laughs> so what I'm curious about is I, I flagged it as a safety issue, um, which I've seen folks from the neighborhood walk uh, into the park and they are walking on the street. And if there's, investment that's being made, not only for the patrons, but for the folks on the island, as far as this beautification project. Uh, I'm curious why there hasn't been an investment made in the safety of pedestrians who are walking into the park. Um, when you, you know, we, we don't get, uh, again, for the golf courses, our patrons uh, either uh, driving into Kalika Park or on the odd occasion cycling into Kalika Park. Uh, our golfers do not walk in for this particular space as it rolls into Kalika Park. If we ever used it for any kind of event type of thing, we would use our golf carts or transportation, uh, sort of the golf buggies to move people between the parking spaces, the parking lot and this space. And that again speaks to why this was always a beautification project and that's the design we presented here uh, in line with the second amendment and not a park or some kind of public access space. There's so many challenges with the space that requires so much investigation. Uh, and so 
that's the reason the space is a beautification project and nothing more at this juncture. Okay, yeah, understood. Uh, last question is typically when we do a design review here at the planning board, uh, the documents also come with the lighting uh, design that's being proposed with the landscape design. Mm -hmm. And I know you all spoke about lighting internally, the, the, the tower, uh, but I don't see any uh, actual drawings that indicate what that lighting scheme would be. And I'm, I'm not quite clear on if there's any other landscape lighting that's being proposed here uh, as part of this uh, Waldorf garden uh, submission. So is, is this uh, drawing missing or, or where, where's, uh, or is it just incomplete? I would say that at this point, I, I was the one who, who I think used the word lighting. I think at this point, there are no plan, there are no um, plans to light the, the, um, the garden any more than the existing sort of ambient light. Remember, it's right up against the street. So it's pretty, uh, there's a fair amount of light already that's washed over, but on a permanent basis, there's no plans to, to install lighting at this time. Okay, all right, thank you. Okay, those are, uh, I think those are the questions, clarifications. We'll open this up for public comment. Uh, if you'd like to speak on this item, please raise your hand. You'll have three minutes to speak. Um, again, raise your hand within the uh, Zoom uh, window and we will call on you. Okay, first speaker, please. Uh, we have Joe Choi. Hi, I, I live across the street from this uh, building. Uh, and uh, just wondering, uh, I guess, wh why is it necessary to have the, the structure, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of large. Um, and I can just see that there, there can be a lot of trespassers just like entering the, the building itself. It just invites people to, to walk into that area. It, I, I don't know if there's a historical significance, but it just doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's a building that, you know, is aesthetically pleasing or I, I don't see see the it's not being used right in, in, in any regard and that's my question okay thank you um could we have the next speaker please yes we have uh matt reed yeah hi um thanks for uh taking my call I appreciate the plans. I think they look great. I think if this doesn't get done by September, I'm gonna sneak there myself with a can of paint and paint it because that's really all it needs. And I think they've gone over and above that to add the pollinator plants. So I really appreciate the the, the care and the thought that's gone into this. And I think you should approve it tonight um, so that I don't get arrested for trespassing. Just kidding. <laughs> Thank you very much. This meeting's being recorded. Uh, next speaker, please. Okay, we have Matt Reed. I believe Matt just spoke. Okay, next next speaker. I guess we have Bill High. Hello, can you hear me? 
Yes. Uh, hello, my name is Bill Pye, and I am a resident of the community of Harbor Bay Isle. I also uh, serve currently as the board president for the primary, or as the president for the primary board for the community of, of Harbor Bay Isle. We did see the presentation from um, Ms. Craig and Mr. Wald, uh, I think it was last week or very recently. And uh, so uh, we have heard of this before. Uh, one thing I wanted to say was that uh, there's, you know, I've been talking about this uh, with a number of members of our community. We are all united in our desire to see that eyesore gone once and for all. And there has been some frustration expressed by members of the community that whenever we ask, why can't you raise the thing, we get told because the city and Greenway agreed that if it's structurally sound, it won't be raised. That's not an answer, that's an excuse. It doesn't explain why it cannot be raised. It, the fact that it is, not, it is structurally sound does not mean it cannot be raised. But let's assume for a minute that uh, that is definitely off the table and that we have to live with this thing. Uh, in my opinion, this proposal is, I mean, if we have to live with this building, okay, this proposal is putting lipstick on a pig. However, uh, if we're not gonna tear that building down, and I think Mr. Patel's comments may have in, insinuated why it is, why the building won't be raised, and that is because neither Greenway nor the city want to incur the cost of tearing it down. If so, then tell the community that, say so, rather than saying, well, we're not gonna tear it down because we deemed it as structurally sound. That is not an answer in itself. But, by, but if that building is not going anywhere, and then if we have to live with the pig, then yeah, sure, let's put lipstick on it. Uh, the the uh, board of the community of Harbor Bay Isle does not oppose this proposal. We desperately want something to be done with that eyesore. In the decades I have lived here, I have wanted to see that thing gone. Beautifying it is better than leaving it as it is. So we thank uh, Greenway, uh, Ms. Craig, Mr. Wald for all your efforts, Mr. Patel for putting this together and working with the constraints that you have. If we cannot raise that building, then we would be in favor of moving forward with this. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Could we go to the next speaker, please? Uh, there are no more public speakers. Uh, I believe uh, we've got someone as a panelist who's raised their hand. Um, maybe I'm on they... here with my hand up. Oh, okay. Uh, did you get promoted to a panelist? Oh, no. <laughs> part of, no. Uh, are you part of the uh, the Greenway group? No. Or? Well, oh. sort of, but not. No, you let, let me just oh. explain. Gina sent her um, a panelist link because we weren't quite sure how to get all of us on, and, and she got one in the mix because I CC'd her on that. So. I just I just want to echo Bill Pye uh, that this is it's been an eyesore. I've lived here for 42 years and I've wanted to paint it myself. Um, same thing, and I think that it, doing doing this to it is is just a community. It's going to benefit the community in its entirety. And I thank you, Umesh and Tracy and the whole team for for even approaching this because it's really it really isn't even part of what you guys need to do. This is an extra, this is over and above. And I appreciate it very, very much because it's an eyesore and it can be very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think, are there, well, I see board member Teague, you have your hand raised. Is this, we are gonna go to board 
uh, deliberations. Did you want to state something before that during the public? No, comment? when we get to board. Oh, okay, okay. So, got it, got it, perfect. Okay, well, this will since there's no other hands raised, this will close the public comment section for this item, and we'll move to uh, board discussion and um, deliberations. Uh, we'll start with board member T. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for speaking on this and the presentations. This is an odd one because truly the decisions were made when the lease agreement was signed. It is a legal contract that says this parcel is now part of the golf course to be used however the golf course leaser wishes to use it with the following condition tear it down or renovate it. And once the decision has been made, which it was that we're not tearing it down, they have to do beautification work, which means painting a mural and installing landscaping substantially consistent with the document attached to the amendment. This is not substantially consistent. I cannot approve it. Um, as much as I may want to. That's what the lease agreement says. The lease needs to change if you want to change it. I would say there are murals that you can do that are very, let's say, low key. Like you make it look like an older building where you're seeing some of the stones underneath in areas where technically it's a mural, but really it looks like a building. Um, that would be within the guidelines of the lease amendment. It doesn't, like the city attorney said, it, it doesn't say you could do something else. I don't see any language in here that says we could mutually agree on something else. That language isn't there. So um, <laughs> I, I'm unclear as to why it was brought forward when the legal terms are so clear. So I, I absolutely cannot support this design at this point. Uh, thank you, board member T. Uh, are there, yeah, uh, board members, please raise your hand if you'd like to speak. Uh, Vice President Ruiz. Um, thank you for everyone for your comments, especially um, the community who spoke up and um, Again, I as I agree with the general public that this building is an eyesore. At the same time, what is being proposed is in um, it's not in agreement with the amendments that was brought forth that was agreed upon between two parties last year. We're not talking about you know, 10 or 12 years ago, this agreement was executed, negotiated and executed last year. And it specifically delineated the requirement of a mural, not public art, but a mural. So if you wanna deviate from that, this needs to be a amendment to your agreement, um, not a design review. Um, and at least that's, a, so by that reason, I cannot put, a, approve this design as much as that, you know, among any other issues, just for that reason, because that is not the purview of what should be reviewed right now. 
Thank you, Vice President Reese. Um, board member Cisneros. Um, yeah, I think um, I agree with my board members on like the, the legal um, analysis of what's um, being considered here. Um, if, you know, we could take a step back um, and revisit like what the purpose of all this was, um, I, I would have um, liked uh you know to explore what it would look like to raise the building and just uh, really give the larger community what they're looking for um because uh yeah it's it's um it's it's for the larger community it should be um everyone in Alameda would see this building um so that's what I'm hearing loud and clear so I would prefer that but um I think like the the legal agreement um, that's being uh, outlined by my fellow board, member, my board members makes sense. Um, and I did just want to speak quickly on another point that's been brought up. And I really appreciate um, the potential to further explore what access would look like for this area um, because the lack of access um, is an issue uh, for me. Uh, you know, there was this bill that's being considered uh, by the state legislature, AB 1910, where they would um, ask cities to consider the golf courses for housing, for especially affordable housing, and give cities grants to do that analysis. And I think the point is, is that we have all this land, and we have a huge housing crisis, and what can we do with this land for public good? And if we can't use this public good for housing, can we use it as a park or some other public good? So to the extent that we could really think more creatively as opposed to being exclusionary with having a gate and not having access to the space, um, I, I would invite Greenway to think about that a little bit more. Thank you, board members Cisneros. Um, Board member Rothenberg. Uh, thanks to members of the public and particularly Mr. Pai, uh, uh, your comments and uh, Mr. Patel and your staff for uh, clarifying the terms. I would concur with my, my fellow board members. My, my, uh, uh, it really merits, first, it's not, it wouldn't be consistent with the, the terms, but also it merits consideration that empty buildings that are just standing are are a risk to the public and the owner of the land and the rest of the property. So really is very little merit to keeping it and investing in it. So, uh, and since the, since the agreement is bilateral with the city that it should go back to the city and, the, and Greenway to renegotiate the terms for a better overall solution for the, um, the long-term of both the lessee and the lessor. And so, based on that, I would I would concur that it's 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 not it doesn't merit approval tonight. Uh, thank you, Board Member Rothenberg. Uh, Board Member Curtis. Thank you. I I agree with my fellow board members. I just want to comment that I've I've seen this tower, and lived here for fifty one years, 
And for 51 years, I've heard the same rhetoric about how it should go away and how it's not. In fact, 51 years ago, it was being used, though, occasionally, but not anymore. And I've played a lot on the golf course. But the point is that we have an opportunity to really do something good for the golf course and for the city of Alameda by raising the tower. And to put the time in to say, okay, it's not, it's not feasible because it's a sound structure. Um, just because it's a sound structure that's going to sit there, it, it, it's just a, a monolith. On the other hand, with it, it might, it might be who you, um, the Greenway, to find out how much it would cost to raise the structure. Because if the structure were raised and the, the area properly landscaped, um, you know, you, you have something that can really add to the community. Uh, I think that, that my fellow board member Cisneros pointed out, it can be used for the public good. And maybe with that, you can put together with a proper budget and a proper plan, not blue sky saying, we'll look into it later, do this later, but a concrete plan that says, this is what we can do now. Something you can put your money on the bank with and take it to the city. Maybe you can get the city and the park department and you to come up with a plan that gives everybody what they need, which is a, a, a parcel of land without the building that doesn't have the asphalt under it, that has proper paths and proper and public access and you really have an asset at the beginning of the golf course that you can be proud of. Uh, given that, I would vote for it in a second. Given the plan that you have now, I can't support it. Thank you. Thank you, Board Member Curtis. Uh, I'll, I'll speak on what I've also um, am seeing here, which uh, you know, I appreciate the fact that uh, Greenway uh, with with collaboration with the city is trying to do something about this um, derelict building because we know that derelict buildings within our neighborhoods and within our city is uh, not not something that we should um, just hold on to. We should we should really figure out what to do with it. At the same time, the investment that's going on with this uh, proposal to me is out of sequence the investment that needs to happen first is access, not just by vehicle, but by foot. And I know even though Mr. Patel said everyone drives to the golf course, uh, which I'm a patron and I, and I do go there, uh, there have been folks who wheel their golf clubs in on that road. And I've seen it a few times and I've driven by them a few times and it's not safe. It's just not safe. And we have, pedestrian casualties. Um, and if we know that this is not a safe condition, please invest in this before you invest in beautifying uh, a building that should probably come down because your investment will go much further to the public safety than walling off uh, this building. So I think there needs to be priorities that need to happen and uh, for me, I, this is why I can't support this because there's other priorities that should be for the public benefit than a visual uh, priority, but more of a safety priority. And, and so uh, I, would, I would ask, the, well, I'd ask the city also to, which, which I did if, again, earlier this year um, when we had the traffic report update and understanding the casualties that we've had on our, um, in our city that 
to me, this was one of the places where investment needed to occur uh, as it is open to the residents. It is, it is public, uh, a park. And even if you're not golfing, you could go there for other reasons. So uh, since it's such uh, you know, easy access for the community around, it, it, uh, one needs to potentially promote the idea that you can bike or walk, uh, or, or walk there. So um, that's, that, that would be my stance. And that's also why I won't be able to support this project. So uh, any other board deliberations that we need to do before we, um, I guess, since this is a design review, uh, Alan, do we actually need to vote on this or yeah go, go ahead Alan you want presence to have a members of the board I thought at this point it would be helpful for you to understand what your options are uh, okay, first yeah. for first of all I just want to clarify that um, unlike the pre other design review applications that come for before you from developers this is not the same type of design review that's covered under AMC section 30-37. So, which means you're not required or tied to making those three findings that you typically make, consistent general, consistency with general plan, compatibility, so forth. So it's mm -hmm. really a subjective lowercase design review in which you, you believe whether the uh, design in front of you meets, meets the, um, uh, lease agreement obligations or, or the or design that you uh, wish to move forward. So really your options would be one, either approve it or two, the staff recommendation would be to direct the applicant to uh, work with the golf commission uh, and revise the design um, to, to meet the standards that you believe. So okay. those, are, those would... are the, the options I believe um, are on the table for you. Okay. I think the board can, probably make a recommendation. So would anyone like to make a motion and then uh, second that motion as far as a recommendation on this agenda item? I'll make a... Board Member Curtis, yes, please. I'll, uh, I'll make a recommendation. I recommend that the um, applicant, um, that the board disapprove the design and send the design back to the applicant to work it out with the golf commission to get a design that's acceptable. Um, also, um, to explore working with the city and with the parks department to expand the design to incorporate um, safety features with regards to ingress and egress, as well as public access, as well as the feasibility of raising the building as part of the design. I'll second. Uh, okay, board member Cisneros, second that motion. Uh, any other discussion on the motion or uh, board member Ruiz? Um, I cannot support the motion, the notion of um, public access into private property. That is, that's a, they have signed a lease and that is part of a private property. So I don't think we have the right to encroach into private property. So I cannot support that portion of the motion. Okay. Uh, well, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Vice President Ruiz, but even as we 
deliberate developer broad projects. We look at public access, we look at ADA, uh, we look at these elements as part of uh, the overarching goals that, that we would have for um, whether they were private or public developments. Right, but this was not part of the, the lease agreement. If, if the city wanted public access, it should have been in the lease agreement. It was not. Right, understood. So the reason for my denial of the design review is because they are not complying with the terms of the agreement. Therefore, we cannot force the applicant to do more than what is not required of them in the lease agreement. Understood. Uh, President Sahiba, yeah. in my motion, I'm suggesting that they go back to the city and to the Golf Commission with the recommendation that they explore these items. Not that they have to do them, but to bring them mm -hmm. on the table to explore these items because what we're looking at is, is a contract that's basically voidable because they haven't complied with it. So there'll be a new contract written or a new amendment written, which may have the, the um, but may have the participation financially of both the city and the parks department to gain the amenities that they want and perfect this thing. And that's what the emotion is saying. Not that they have to do, but, but they have to explore it. Understood. Vice President Ruiz, is that clarification? Um, I think, thank you for clear. the clarification, Board Member Curtis. I think that's an overarching reach of this board. That is not our authority. Well, we don't, we're, we're not making a, a, a statement set in stone, we're making a recommendation. So the reach of this board is, is, is one that I would we can make with, recommendations. I would check Unless, with the attorney. Okay. Um, Selena, do you have a, a, an opinion on making a recommendation? to the city and to Greenway, as board member Curtis has stated. Based, based on my understanding, what's before the board is, you know, the requirement is to review, ultimately review and approve the design of the fire tower um, and the beautification of the fire tower. I think, you know, as I stated earlier, amendment of the lease is not required. You know, the, the board could tonight approve what's being presented if the board, um, and if there's a motion and votes to do so. I, to answer your question about whether, you know, the board isn't involved in approval of a lease amendment, really, you know, the board has no, I mean, doesn't have to recommend a lease amendment or have any say in, 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 in that. So I think whether that's part of the motion or not, um, it, it could, it really doesn't have any, um, much legal effect. It's a recommendation. So I think it's fine to keep it in the motion it's fine to take it out. So either way, I think is is fine to move forward. Okay. Yes, because I think the way that 
and correct me if I'm wrong, board member Curtis, the way that the motion was stated, it's an exploration on three fronts. One is explore the potential for um, eliminating the, the tower, uh, explore also the opportunity for making a more safe pedestrian connection and also um, explore the uh, ability to access the uh, grounds of the tower. Were those the three items that uh, that you were recommending that was explored that the city and, and Greenway could explore? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The meat, the meat of the motion is that the application is denied and the recommendation which they don't have, we don't have any legal basis for them to follow it, but at least it goes on record, giving them the parameters of something that the city has put on notice as well as the, as the developer, as well as the park, the, the park department, as well as the, 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 the city council on what would be optimal in, in a revised um, amendment, but they don't have to do it. But at least it, it, sure. it, it memorializes the discussion that this board has had. And that was the purpose of the amendment the way it was done. Uh, Vice President Ruiz, is that clear that this is not binding? It is just a recommendation for I them to explore not, this? I understand it's not binding. Um, I, I, I'm perfectly clear of that. Um, I just want to be very careful on what um, what is within our purview. And when we say as a recommendation, well, anybody can say any kind of recommendation. Somebody, I mean, the applicant has been in this hearing. They know what, how I feel, how we feel. We have all voiced our concern. Um, I just want to be very careful not overreaching. Okay. So. Uh, understood. Board member Teague, you have your hand raised. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I agree a lot with Vice President Ruiz. If you would accept the amendment saying we deny the appeal with a non-binding recommendation of the things you just said, I can support that. Okay. I think we're I saying no that this is... That. Okay. Uh, it's just to memorialize our discussion. And we've talked about it for an hour, 45 minutes. It, it, at least the city has an idea of where we were coming from. And so does the developer. And, it, and at least it gives some weight to their appeal if they want to try to get funds from the park department and the city for something that, that makes everybody, um, that, that's a better deal for the, the golf course. Okay, um, so why don't I, if uh, board member Cisneros, uh, are you comfortable seconding the motion with the amendment that board member Teague stated of, of non-binding yes. exploration? Yes, that works for me. Okay. The second motion stand. Okay, great. Any other discussion or can we go ahead and vote on this? Uh, no other discussion. Alan, do you want to go ahead and take the vote? Sure. Uh, Board Member Curtis? Aye. Uh, Rothenberg? Aye. Uh, Cisneros? Aye. Uh, 
Vice President Ruiz? Aye. Board Member T? Aye. And President Sahaba? Aye. And that motion passes with six votes. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to agenda item 7B, public hearing to consider uh, a resolution re recommending that the city council amend the health and safety element and conservation and climate action element of the Alameda general plan 2040. Uh, will we be having a presentation on this? Uh, I'd like to introduce Danielle Miller, our sustainability resilience manager. Okay, great. Danielle. Good evening, President Sahiba and members of the planning board. My name is Danielle Miller, Alameda Sustainability and Resilience Manager. Um, I just have a short oral presentation for you tonight. Um, so the item before you is a resolution recommending that the city council adopt an amendment to the health and safety and conservation and climate elements of the general plan to align with the climate adaptation and hazard mitigation plan. Um, you may recall that the Climate Adaptation Hazard Mitigation Plan was brought before the Planning Board at its September 27th meeting and recommended to Council for adoption. Since that time, staff has had the final plan reviewed by Cal OES and FEMA, and it was deemed approvable pending adoption by FEMA on May 1st. The Climate Adaptation Hazard Mitigation Plan will serve as the five-year update to Alameda's 2016 Local Hazard Mitigation, mitigation Plan, and also up updates the adaptation chapter of the Climate Action and Resiliency Plan, or CARP. Having an approved plan makes Alameda eligible for pre-disaster mitigation grant funding from FEMA and points under the community rating system, which provides flood insurance discounts to residents in the floodplain. As the mitigation plan was being finalized, staff reviewed the uh, mitigation and adaptation strategies along with the relevant policies and strategies in the general plan and CARP and determined that there was significant overlap between the three sets of strategies and policies, but that alignment could be made more robust. Um, under AB 21 set, or 2140, adopted in 2007, alignment between the general plan safety element and hazard mitigation plan would also make Alameda eligible to be considered for additional post-disaster funding for certain recovery activities. AB 2140 requires at a minimum that the mitigation plan be adopted as an appendix to the general plan safety element. However, more comprehensive alignment is also encouraged and staff determined that it would be beneficial for Alameda. Um, Alameda's general plan was adopted by city council on November 30th. And since that time, staff has made recommended edits to the health and safety and conservation and climate elements um, policies that would align the relevant strategies in the general plan with the Climate Adaptation and Hazard Mitigation Plan. The recommended revisions are outlined in Exhibit 1 to the resolution. As FEMA requires an annual review of the Hazard Mitigation Plan, we're also proposing that the CARP annual report, which came before um, your board earlier this year, also include progress reports on these strategies, thereby by better aligning city efforts on climate adaptation and hazard mitigation. Um, following planning board's recommendation, staff will recommend the final climate adaptation and hazard mitigation plan and the general plan amendments to city council for adoption. And the plan will be adopted as an appendix to the general plan safety element in compliance with AB 2140. Um, that concludes my presentation tonight. I'm happy to answer any questions you have at this time. Okay, if you'd like to ask any clarifying questions, um, 
uh, please raise your hand. Uh, seeing no board members have raised their hand, we'll open this up. Oh, oh, sorry, board member Curtis, apologies. Um, board member Curtis, you're muted, I believe. Sorry. Okay. On page six with the building codes, you state that um, you want to incorporate retrofit, um, retrofitting the floor elevations into the building codes. Does that mean that people who are living in their houses, making any change or additions, have to raise their floors? Or what kind of a retrofit are you talking about to comply in the building code? I'm know sorry, I'm, uh, can you can you um, point me to which sure. policy I'm you're on, I'm, I'm on page six, building code, item C. And, um, and then it- Of the draft resolution, here. look at the draft resolution. Yeah, it's at the bottom of that page. And the last sentence, consider incorporating C, level rise into the flood management uh, to encourage it and send it or require require compliance with base floor elevation requiring compliance is that gonna is that going to re require people to retrofit their floor elevations if they're doing a major improvement to the house this um this strategy was under a uh, new development so uh I believe that we were considering here just um, for new construction in this case. Can it be clarified to state new construction? Sure. Or am I misreading it? You know, that's 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 possible too. But I the way I read it, um, it, it's for older houses too. So let's say that you put in a bedroom or something, conceivably, if you bring it to code, you may have to raise the found raise the, the, the floor level. That's a very expensive proposition. Right, and I, I do think that the intent here was for new construction. Okay, perfect, thank you. That's my only question. Thank you, Board Member Curtis, uh, Vice President Ruiz. Thank you, Ms. Miller for your presentation. Um, I have questions specifically on the um, mitigation plan on page 5-3. Under um, stormwater management plan, you've mentioned that this plan was done before um, FEMA issued their floodplain map. Um, so, well, do we need to update the storm man stormwater management plan um, be updated prior to the five-year cycle, just to be compliant to address um, FEMA's latest floodplain plan, a floodplain map? Sorry. Um, I'm not sure if I can speak to the need to update the. Um, you were you were talking about the. I'm sorry, but which you were which page were you in? Five dash three. You know the actual document. Uh huh. The actual document. Um, chapter. It says the bottom. Just yeah. Five dash five dash three. All the way yeah. on the top. It says stormwater management plan was issued prior to FEMA up to, you know, issuing their latest uh, floodplain map. So my question is, do we need to re-update re that management plan? 
Give that's a good, up. that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that, to that question. And, um, I believe that the storm drain master plan is something that's completed by public works. Um, okay, so, so I think can you just look into it. Yeah. yeah. I'm happy to look into that. Okay. And then, um, I think on the same page, I think the paragraph below, and sorry, I'm kind of speaking from memory because I don't have two screens on this uh -huh. thing. Um, it says, um, sewer, sewer management, currently the evaluation it meets current capacity. Just want to know if it meets future capacity. So. I can look into both of those questions. I have more. Okay. <laughs> um, page 5-21 um, under key partners. Um, it looks like AMP was not listed. Um, Alameda Municipal Power was not listed as part of, part of the uh, one of the key partners, and yet they were listed in. Uh, maybe I've missed it, but if you can look into that, that would be great. Yeah, and you uh, you said that was AMP was a key partner in the development of this plan, right? Um, but they so, were not listed in the table starting page five twenty one. Right. We talk about PG. oh yes um, okay so this. Um, this table was, um, and maybe AMP could be listed here. However, this was for um, sort of outside city agency partners. Oh, I see. Their okay. strategies. So AMP was um, incorporated more as within the city and their it. strategies. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. Thank you, uh, board member T. Thank you. Uh, Danielle, I don't think it was an oversight to include the retrofit in that section because the labeling says this is new words that were added in terms of the retrofit in existing buildings. It was the new language that was added. It was just added to the section that's labeled new construction. And then later on, it talks about we should have grants for low-income people to do these retrofits. So I, I'm, I don't believe that striking that out of there is the intent. Um, so where would we get more information on that? Um, I think that, I mean, I think that this, I'm happy to take direction from the planning board on, on your preference for this. And I, I do apologize. It's been a little bit of time since we've um, made these edits. Um, and so I know that there are um, policies related to retrofit of existing buildings for flood and um, for, for earthquakes and so forth. Um, I, I don't remember having the intent of, of requiring um, raising the floor of existing buildings for flood in, in the building code. Um, but I'm, I'm oh, it, happy to take your direction is, on that. In yeah, it, the question is not so much about raising the floor, it's the, what type of retrofits are we talking about requiring? I, I believe that's what board member Curtis and other members of the community would be interested in, in terms of, I live in the flood zone. Uh, what is it that we're talking about potentially requiring homeowners to do. Um, and that's the, that's really the question there. 
Um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this um, policy again, and it does talk about encouraging, yeah, incentivizing or re or requiring compliance. Um, so, so again, I, I think if if there's a way that you would like to to amend this or or revise it to um, focus more on the encouraging or incentivizing, um, you know, I'm happy to take those those comments. Board member Curtis, do you have some wording that you would want to see that change to? No, I'm I'm fine. Uh, the only concern that I had was with the um, with the sea level and the foundations. Well, that's so exactly I, what we're talking about. Okay, I, I I I was I was in the restroom just a couple of minutes ago. Oh, so sorry, I, I, I missed that. I'm sorry. Now the whole world knows, but nevertheless. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. The, the, the issue is this is new language that was specifically added to this section to specifically cover retrofitting. What the retrofitting is, is not clear. It could have, you know, whether it's the raising the floors like you're talking about or dealing with foundation that you're talking about or adding berms or, you know, I don't know what that is you know, should instead of being require to incentize instead of require. Uh, but I don't know what the driving factor for why we're adding these words in order to get the benefit that we were talking about. The reason why we're trying to do this is because there's a benefit uh, to the community uh, for if there's an event, there's potentially money available and things if we do something. And so it's, it's fine as, as long as it's not a mandatory item where somebody has a fixed budget in there and suddenly they've got a cost that's that's quite substantial because they're doing some other type of repair or addition to their their structure. And because it's in the building code, it, they have it's mandatory that they make these improvements. And that's what I was trying to get around. Well, in certain respects, this is similar to soft story. I mean, it's a, there is a risk because your property does not have certain things uh, if certain events occur. So it looks like uh, Director Thomas has something to add. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, thank you. I just wanted to sort of pipe in for a minute. This is a general plan and we're syncing it up to the hazardous hazard mitigation plan. Um, I think the intent here, it may not have been as gracefully done as we probably could have, or made a little confusing between the retrofit versus new construction. But I mean, I think the concept here is, look, we, we gotta start preparing for sea level rise. We have to start preparing for more flooding. A general plan starts laying out and looking forward towards the things we're going to need to start talking about as a community. When you say you're going to amend the building code to start doing these kinds of things, what we're saying is we're gonna to have to start having these conversations. Um, I think that you, what you've started now is the conversation. Um, and you're right, we're gonna to have, to have to figure out incentives 
and we're going to have to figure out financial support for people who can't afford to do these things. But there might also be requirements um, uh, to when you're doing a substantial rehabilitation, you start that we need you to invest in, in flood protection as well. But by adopting this language, you're not, it doesn't mean that somebody comes in tomorrow and has to do this. It means we have to start having public hearings to talk about how we're going to do it. Um, and those, those requirements then get adopted into the building code and they don't get enforced and implemented until those steps have taken place. Okay. Uh, any other further clarifications, um, board member T that you have? No, okay. I just had um, a quick question on the rising groundwater, and, and this is, I guess, on page uh, two, um, CC-23. There's a few actions that are proposed here, infrastructure and access, building codes, annual review, and data collection. All of these um, being items that seem to be not only things that would be beneficial for Alameda as a city to do, but our um, other communities along the water in the Bay Area. So is this uh, whether there's, you know, strategies to um, monitor to see what's happening? It says annual monitor groundwater levels in progress on specific strategies. Uh, is this a collaborative effort that is being proposed amongst um, multiple communities within the Bay? Or uh, how, how is this being um, looked at. I, I know we're focused on Alameda. I was just curious what the collaboration was with uh, other um, jurisdictions. Thank you for that. Um, I do know that there is, Alameda was um, at the forefront of this issue of groundwater rise and, um, you know, it makes sense we're, we're low lying and sort of at the forefront in terms of that risk as well. Um, since the time that Alameda's groundwater study was published in 2020, there has been, I think, a broader effort across the, the region to do um, additional studies and analysis of the groundwater um, rise issue. And um, I believe more data collection and refinement of the model um, is, on, is going through that effort. I do anticipate that the city of Alameda will also need to do its own refinement of its groundwater model and, and um, monitoring um, of, of the groundwater levels. But there is um, a broader awareness now and some effort that's in collaboration that's happening um, across the region. Okay, great, thank you. But just a question about that for the staff. My experience was that prior to 2016, the Association of Bay Area Governments used to work with the jurisdictions as a whole in the preparation of the local hazard mitigation plans. And from that point on, the individual jurisdictions were responsible to prepare their own. And the, the one I worked on for Alameda County, we did not collaborate at all outside the county uh, intergovernmental um, uh, agencies. In, in preparation and submission to FEMA. So to um, President Seheba's question, 
is it, has there been any continuing ability of all the jurisdictions to collaborate with ABAG for um, the synthesis of, of um, metrics which don't, you know, data which doesn't end at the, um, the border of one community to another? Um, that's a good question. Um, so I was at the Association of Bay Area Governments until 2016 and uh, led the, the development of those multi-jurisdictional plans. Yeah. I'm clearly not there anymore and yeah. that work uh, was not continued right. um, in my absence. Uh, so ABAG is, is, to my understanding, um, is monitoring the development of hazard mitigation plans locally but is not uh, coordinating their development any longer. Um, and and I, 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 I apologize, I'm not keeping up on-, on But they that. vary somewhat, don't they, Danielle? I mean, if you, if you put in the city of uh, Alameda's um, uh, plan next to the city of Berkeley's plan, and you put the county of Alameda's plan next to the city and county of San Francisco's plan, they're, the, the, the content overlaps, but in, in content and format, they're, they're not one template. Um, Correct. Right. And yeah, and, and the, the idea behind the 2016 coordination was that there is a fair amount of overlap between jurisdictions in the Bay Area and that the region could provide some guidance and sort of base information that could be used, but the planning itself would need to happen locally. Okay. Thank you. Anything else, uh, Board Member Rothenberg? No, th thank you very much for the materials and all, all of the informative dialogue. Okay, let's go ahead and open this up for public comment. If you'd like to speak on this item, um, please raise your hand and you'll have three minutes. Uh, are there any speakers who would like to speak? We don't have any public speakers um, at this time. Okay, so we'll close the public portion of this um, item and uh, any further board deliberations or recommendations as uh, uh, on this item. Okay, seeing that there's no hands raised. Uh, thank you for the presentation. I don't believe there's any action we need to take since this is just a public hearing. Uh, uh, isn't to, there to a draft resolution? Oh, is there a draft resolution? Oh, there is. There yes, is. there's a draft resolution. Um, it's a recommendation by the planning board to the city council. Got it, got it. Okay, my, <laughs> my apologies. Uh, all right. So uh, would anyone like to make a motion on, on the draft resolution? Oh, I, I would move to adopt the draft uh, resolution um, recommending that the city council amend the health and safety element and conservation and climate action element of the general plan to align with the 2022 um, climate adaptation and hazard mitigation plan as stated in the staff report. Okay. Uh Board Member Curtis, did you have something? Yeah, can we just can we just amend that a little bit to get the language in there about the retrofits on either new construction or take out the the um, making it mandatory and making it something that that is 
is, is less um, directive. So, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll revise my motion and just to, to say, to um, consider, um, we recommend the resolution subject to the edits for ex existing buildings and sea level rise uh, as per the discussion. I, I second that. Okay, um, Alan, let's go ahead and take a vote. Okay, uh, Board Member Curtis. Aye. Cisneros. Aye. Uh, Rothenberg. Aye. Vice President Rees. Aye. Board Member Teague. Aye. President Sahaba. Aye. And that motion carries six with six votes. Okay, great. Let's move on to agenda item 7C. This is a public workshop to review and comment on the April 2022 draft housing element and propose zoning code amendments um, for to accommodate the arena allocations for the period of 2023 through 2031. Um, we have a presentation from Director Thomas. Thank you, um, President Saheba. Um, I'm trying to fix my screen here. Um, Hopefully you see my screen. Yes, you can see your screen. Um, yeah, as you said, this is uh, Andrew Thomas, Planning, Building, and Transportation Director. This is a workshop. Um, it's really an opportunity for us to give you an, uh, a status report on our ongoing effort to update the housing element. We don't need any final actions tonight, um, but we welcome direction. And obviously this is another opportunity to take public comment on the draft housing element um, that we are working on. Um, just, to sort of summarize for, for um, process, um, in April, um, we released uh, the draft housing element for public review, 30-day review. Uh, that public comment period, that initial 30-day comment period ends today, May 9th. Um, during this period, we've received a large variety of emails and letters um, as of this afternoon. Um, the, the, it was about 135 pages, um, and we still have um, comments, many of which you've already received, um, that came in this afternoon. Um, during this period, we've also had one city council workshop, two historic advisory committee, or uh, historic advisory board meetings, and, and the planning board has had two meetings since we released this draft. Um, so we've been getting a lot of comment. It's been really helpful, and we have already started um, making revisions to the draft. Um, the, the, as I said, the, the public comment period ends today. Um, and what this does, it just sort of ends this portion of the um, public process. Um, our game plan is to, uh, tomorrow we will consolidate all of the letters and emails together and post them all on the website so that everybody can see all the letters and all the information. As I said, the planning board's already seen a lot of it, but um, it just we think it'll be easier for everyone to have one consolidated set of letters and comments. We'll post those on the website tomorrow. Um, 
We also have are, um, have made a, a number of changes to the draft already, which I will summarize for you tonight. But we will publish our draft amendments, you know, the actual strikeout underlying version of the draft plan tomorrow on the website as well, just so everybody can sort of see where we're at. Um, our thought is that we will finish making the changes by May 16th and publish all of those changes. And when, I'm, when I say changes, I don't mean, you know, summary of changes, but the actual wording changes to the draft housing element, publish that on May 16th um, in time for a final public uh, workshop at the planning board meeting of May 23rd. Um, any final directions from the board on May 23rd? And then we will, um, we hope to send it off to uh, State of California Housing and Community Development Department. Um, that's the next step in the process. Um, this, the state will have 30 days, or excuse me, 90 days to review the housing element. So that's gonna be occurring between June and August. Um, during that period, we, we um, hope to have additional meetings with the planning board to pick up where we have left off with the planning board on the actual zoning amendments needed to implement the housing element. When you read through the letters, you will see the vast majority of the comments are not actually on the housing element itself, but on the zoning that we have proposed to implement the housing element. So um, we have three months to continue that work with the planning board, continue to fine tune the zoning um, while HCD is reviewing, reviewing the housing element. Um, we will hear back from HCD end of August and then things will start getting interesting because we'll know what the state thinks about our housing element. We are pretty sure they'll have a number of comments and requested changes to our housing elements. So um, August and September, we will be reviewing those comments with the board and making any necessary revisions to the housing element um, with the board in the hopes that we can position ourselves and the planning board to make a final recommendation on both the housing element and the accompanying zoning changes to the city council in October of this year and put the city council in a position to hold their public hearings either in November or December of this year. Um, in terms of the housing element itself and the draft housing element, just to sort of remind everyone, there's really two major challenges that we have to address when dealing with this housing element update. And um, they are number one, um, an obligation to affirmatively further fair housing, which means taking meaningful, meaningful actions in addition to combating discrimination to overcome patterns of segregation, and foster inclusive communities free of barriers that restrict access to housing and opportunities. This is a change in state law. This basic principle has always been in state law, but since our last housing element, this aspect of state law has uh, um, been amended significantly. And this, when you look at all the comments that HCD has made on other uh, cities, housing elements in Southern California, over 96% of their comments focus on this issue. Um, and, then, and then of course, the other big challenge is, to, is the site's inventory, to find the space and the land necessary to accommodate the 5,353 units, which is our arena for the next eight years. 
Affirmatively furthering fair housing. This is an issue that I, when you read through the letters, it's, it's pretty clear to us that people don't fully understand what this means for Alameda. Everybody in all, um, a huge number of letters that you'll see um, when you review all letters are all focusing on the 5,300 number as if that's the only thing we have to worry about. It's not the only thing we have to worry about when doing this housing element. We have to address this issue of furthering fair housing. And it, the state of California has already told us that we have a major fair housing problem in our city charter. And the, and the state has sent us a letter basically, not basically, specifically stating that Article 26, and I quote, conflicts with state law and is unenforceable, and I quote, denies fair housing and is fundamentally contrary to furthering fair housing. So we have a problem that we need to fix in our housing element. An article, just for those of the members of the public who may not know what Article 26 says and why it is such a fair housing problem is that our city charter states that multifamily housing, which is the most affordable housing type, is prohibited in Alameda. And our Article 26 also says that residential densities above 22 units an acre, which are the densities that support affordable housing, are prohibited everywhere in Alameda. So that's a fundamental issue that we have to overcome in this housing element. One of the changes that you'll see in the draft housing element that we're publishing tomorrow, um, and we are still working on, so we, we are still um, taking suggestions and thoughts um, before we send this housing element to HCD, is a summary in the introduction of the housing element. So summarizing what we are doing about this problem of Article 26 and fair housing. And what this summary states is that this housing element is proposing to remove the citywide prohibition on multifamily housing of three or more units and remove the citywide prohibition on residential densities over 22 units per acre, which restrict access to housing for those who cannot afford the more expensive low density detached forms of housing. And we have three programs that specifically talk about this, programs two, three, and four. And we are ensuring that all housing types, including but not limited to multifamily housing, and a variety of other types of housing um, will be permitted by right in all residential and mixed use zoning districts and thus ensuring equal access to all housing opportunities in all Alameda neighborhoods and mixed use districts. This is also addressed in those same three housing programs, two, three, four, and also 21. And finally, we are ensuring that housing opportunity sites are available in every residential and mixed use district throughout Alameda, including high and the highest opportunity areas as defined um, by the state of California. And this is in our appendix um, E sites, housing sites inventory. Um, in the recent correspondence, not over the last few weeks, huge focus on the residential districts. And, um, the, um, and, the, and the proposed zoning changes um, in the residential district. So our most current version of the housing element, which has 
um, like I said, we will make public tomorrow and we're still working on it. So we're still taking comments. We are proposing some changes to the program related to the zoning of the residential districts. And I just wanna highlight some of the changes that we're proposing. The program as published on April 4th um, for the residential districts um, focused on the R2 through R6. We are now adding the R1 to that district. So it's clear that we're addressing our fair housing issues in all of our residential districts, including the R1. On the housing types, we have said, and this is not changing, that um, we are going to permit multifamily housing in all of these districts. And we are clarifying, and this was a suggestion made by APS, we thought it was a good idea, that we just need to clarify, design review shall be conducted to ensure compliance with adopted objective design review standards. So we'll, when we say it's permitted by right, we're not saying it's exempt from design review. Um, in terms of multifamily housing in R1, the planning board will remember that we, the city of Alameda recently amended the R1 district to allow up to four units per lot. The reason why we feel it's important to allow multifamily housing in the R1 is we, if we allow four units on a lot, there doesn't seem to be any reason not to allow buildings with more than two units. Um, the, a building with four units might be better than two separate buildings on the lot with two units each. Um, there's also a lot of correspondence saying that we have a limited density requirements in the residential districts. Um, that's not true. At the April 4th draft does not eliminate densities. It does eliminate the 22 acre blanket prohibition um, of measure A. Um, and what it proposes is to um, increase the residential density in the um, R3 to 30 units the acre, R4 to 40 units the acre, R5 to 50 units the acre, and R6 to 60 units the acre. So um, it is getting rid of the blanket 22, 22 unit per acre uh, limitation and replacing it with this um, graduated increase in density depending on the um, type of zoning district. That hasn't changed since April 4th. We are making a change um, to the open space requirements. This is after hearing comments from the planning board and others about the open space requirements. And we're proposing to reduce the on-site open space requirements in all residential districts to 60 square feet per unit. Two new waivers that we are introducing that were not included in the April 4th draft. One is an adaptive reuse incentive, incentives and waivers provision. Um, this would exempt adaptive reuse of, an ex, of, uh, of existing buildings for residential purposes from the residential density limits that I just described and the open space standards in all residential districts. So this is an, um, a provision that we've talked about with the planning board and the public for the last six months, um, but we thought it was important to explicitly state it because it wasn't in the April 4th version, um, which is if, because we really want people to add housing units and we would like them to do it within the existing built form, within existing buildings. So um, this incentivizes the reuse of existing buildings. 
um, by exempting them from residential density standards and open space standards. If you tear down the building, then you need to meet the density standards and the open space standards. But if you preserve the building and reuse it, then you, you get, you're incentivized by being exempt from those standards. And then the other um, new incentive waiver, or not new, but adjustment that we're making is the, what we're calling the transit-oriented housing incentives and waivers. And the idea here is to exempt residential development on all residentially zoned parcels within one quarter mile of high quality transit routes from residential density and open space standards. So the same basic incentive and waiver um, as the adaptive reuse for projects which are within a quarter mile of high quality transit. And in those districts, have uh, uh, allowing for a, a minimum 40 foot height limit. If all the new units to be constructed are small, 1000 square feet in size or less. So if you, because that's another thing we're trying to incentivize is small units versus large units. And just for information purposes, um, what that, in terms of what that height limit increase does, if you're in the R1 or R2, which is currently a 30 foot height limit, you're getting an extra 10 feet. If you're in the R3 or R4, which is currently a 35 foot height limit, you're getting an extra five feet. If you're in the R5 or the R6, then there is no height bonus for the small units. And then finally, um, this was a comment suggested um, uh, that from one of the letters, uh, I think from the housing advocates, that we just should be really clear that Accessory dwelling units are exempt from all density standards in all residential districts. Okay, that was the long one. Um, let's keep moving. Uh, the other th summary in the introduction that we're adding is an introduction and overview of our inventory and some important points about how we are deciding where to put our 5,300 units. Um, and what we are doing with our inventory uh, is we are trying to encourage transit-oriented development. Over 75% of the housing identified in our housing inventory is located in areas which are defined as transit-rich pursuant to the California Public Resources Code. So we've really tried to focus our new housing in areas that are well-served by transit. Over 75% of our housing sites are located in priority development areas, PDAs, which are designated in the Plan Bay Area, which is the region's sustainable community strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and address climate change. Um, this is an important policy objective for the city of Alameda and our general plan. And we've tried to implement that um, through um, the housing element. Thirdly, high resource and inclusive communities. This is a theme from our new general plan, inclusive neighborhoods. Um, it's also an important aspect of state housing law. Approximately 50% of the acreage in this land use element is located in the high or highest resource areas. And then finally, the use of public lands for housing. Over 30% of the housing identified in our inventory is located on public land. Park Street and Webster Street, 
and the C1 neighborhood stations. Um, there has been a lot of communication um, generated by our Alameda Architectural Preservation Society and their supporters about the proposal to raise height limits on Park Street and Webster Street. Um, we are continuing to recommend that. Uh, the reason that we believe the height limit should be 60 feet on Webster Street um, is based primarily on extensive conversations with housing developers about the challenges of developing new housing on places like Park Street and Webster Street. And what we are hearing is that to realistically expect new housing to be built on Park Street and Webster Street, we probably need at least five stories or 60 feet. To be clear, Park Street is already at 60 feet. So this is really about Webster Street and raising it from three stories to five stories. Currently the height limit on all of Webster Street is 40 feet. What we are proposing to change on Webster Street um, in recognition of the, of the historic portion from Lincoln Avenue to Central Avenue is that we would require that any portion of the building over 40 feet be set back 15 feet from the front property line to complement the existing two and three story historic facades along those blocks to try to maintain that sort of historic ground floor facade of two to three stories on even the new buildings. Now, it is important to remember, um, <clears throat> we already have a 20 foot setback on the rear um, to protect the residential interface on the rear of these small lots. Now, most of these small lots are about 100 feet deep. They mostly have residential on their backside. So anything over three stories on the backside is gonna to have to be set in 20 feet. Every, and now with this, you're setting in 15 feet from the front. So essentially um, any floor over three stories is going to only be able to take advantage of about 65% of the floor area of the of the, of the lower floors. This will reduce the capacity, um, but we felt it was important to recognize the historic, um, those historic blocks. On the C1, we're also recommending a modest height limit uh, increase. Currently in these districts, the height limit is two stories. Even though the height limit on the adjacent residential district, which is immediately adjacent to these properties might be higher. So what we're proposing is the height limit in the C1 district be modified to match the height of the adjacent residential district. Um, in terms of this actual inventory uh, amendments, uh, we are making some revisions to the Park Street and Webster Street um, list of sites, uh, reevaluating those sites and reevaluating the realistic capacity based on these changes and, and just additional information about the uh, potential opportunity sites on Park Street and Webster Street. Um, we're doing the same for the residential districts and we're removing the AUSD surplus sites from the, from the inventory. Um, we won't really know whether those are realistic until um, the June ballot measure 
um, whether it passes or not. So at this point, it's premature to assume those sur AUSD surplus sites um, will be available. Um, and the Thompson Field site in particular generated a lot of concern for a lot of residents. Um, on the other appendices, we've taken care of a number of cleanups and revisions, not um, substantive, um, but mostly just clean up clarifications. And the planning board identified a number of things that need to be cleaned up. So we're, we're doing all those cleanups. A um, couple just quick additional program changes. Shopping center overlay program, we're removing the maximum density standard, removing that density transfer provision. I think we talked about this at the last meeting. So that the shopping center overlay program will be similar to Parks and Webster Street, focused on form-based standards, height, setback, et cetera. Um, the, our ADU program, this is our accessory dwelling unit program, adding a, um, a proposal for consideration of construction tax relief, one more way to incentivize ADUs and reduce construction costs. On the inclusionary housing program, we're adding a um, provision uh, suggesting that the city reconsider the 15% program right now is 7% moderate income, 8% lower, which is low and very low. Um, the housing element, um, housing characteristics appendix talks about moderate income. Um, a moderate income family in Alameda can actually afford a median rent, the median rents in Alameda. So it, it raises the question, if we're gonna require affordable housing and 15%, um, should we be requiring 7% of it be deed restricted for moderate income or should we lower that percentage and maybe increase the percentage for lower income? from 8% to 10% or 12%. That's where the real need exists in the lower income categories. A couple of clarifications to the density bonus program around universal design and height waivers, uh, fixing the names and the just cause provisions for, to, to reflect our current rent control program. Um, and then looking at our rehabilitation program, um, introducing the concept of a vacancy tax um, the other thing that you may have noticed when reading the housing constraints, or excuse me, the housing conditions appendix is that there's a relatively large number of just vacant units that are not on the market, not for rent, just plain vacant. Um, so the concept of vacancy tax to discourage people from having long-term vacancies. Um, also to make ADUs eligible for substantial rehab. This came up at one of the planning board uh, recent meetings. The policies, which are an important part of the housing element, it is an element of the general plan. The policies are an important part. Very few comments on the policies, which I think is a good sign. Um, we are adding a policy about the vacancy tax. Um, we are making some changes to policy H23 discussed state funding. This relates to homelessness. I think we received this comment from one of the planning board members. Um, and then there's a number of just cleanup texts and clarifications that we're doing to the policy amendments. Um, with that, I will conclude. Um, I'm available to answer any questions. Alan Tai is here with me tonight. He's also been instrumental in, in the work on this um, housing element. He can help me answer any questions. We don't need any actions from you tonight. Um, really just an update. Wanted to give you a sense of where we are at and where we are headed um, and what the next steps in the process are. For us, 
the big focus right now for us is making these revisions and then getting this element off to the state to find out what they think. Just, uh, I know the client board knows this, but to remind the public, this is a document that needs to be approved by both the state of California and the city of the city council, the city of Alameda. So um, we're very anxious to find out um, what the state of California thinks about our draft. And then the conversations really get very interesting because that's when the planning board, the community and the city council um, can really, um, are gonna have some very interesting decisions to be made about how do we address the state's concerns or if they have any problems with our housing elements. So that's where we're at. Um, happy to answer any questions, take any direction tonight. Um, myself, Alan Tai, Selena Chen, we're all here to um, contribute. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you, Director Thomas for thorough presentation. Uh, we'll first go to board member T for questions and clarifications. I have one quick question for Andrew. So you have August in your schedule, but August is typically a month we don't have meetings. Are you planning on not doing that this year? No, I, I um, you know, I, if we get it off in late May, I mean, we're hoping to send it off in late May. Um, that means NHCD has 90 days. Um, so we probably won't get our, our letter back until late August. I'm sort of thinking we'll write a staff report. We'll, you know, sort of, we'll get the letter from HCD. We will analyze the letter. We'll write a staff report for the planning board. I, I'm assuming we'll be the first, I'm hoping if everything goes great, first meeting in September, you'll be getting a okay. packet that says, here's the letter from the state of California. You can read it yourselves, but based on this letter, we think we have the following, whatever, 15 changes. We're hoping for a short letter. I mean, we've drafted this housing element and now we've had it reviewed by our consultants and we've had it review, peer reviewed by a second set of consultants um, provided through ABAG. Um, and so we're really trying to write a housing element where it's this, you know, the state's comments will be limited. And, and, and hopefully we've, we think we're there with the state. We're, you know, we're not sure, we won't know. Everybody's been telling us like, oh, prepare yourself. It's gonna be tough. Um, but, you know, in 2007, the letter we got from the state was 19 pages long. Um, in 2014, it was more like five pages long. Um, we're hoping for a short letter this time, but we just don't know until we hear. Okay. Yeah, I just uh, planning out my summer. No, please um, take August off. There will be okay, plenty so of work the, in September. The next question is for the city attorney. So pretty much we're saying Article 26 is fully preempted and that's the action we're taking. Is the city attorney concurring with this? I think our office's opinion has been um, to the extent state law conflicts with measure A, then measure A is preempted. So the opinion letter that you sent previously is still the position of the city attorney? That's correct. Thank you. 
Okay, board member Curtis. Uh, thank you, uh, President Sahaba. Uh, my, my question is for the city attorney. Help us understand what it takes to, to implement a vacancy tax. I'm sorry, I missed the last part. Could you? Tell me, tell me the procedure for implementing a vacancy tax. I can see starting with a vacancy tax and then going on to an empty bedroom tax and going on to, you know, that tax on this. What is a vacancy tax and how is that implemented? Does it require a vote of the people or is it done by ordinance? I believe a, a vacancy tax would require a vote of the people. Uh, I've not looked into it with any detail, but I can get back to you on that. Um, okay, because the, the vacancy tax that they're talking, that, that Andrew, you mentioned, that, that's an option, an option to get people to rent their properties, but it, it, it hasn't been implemented and it needs to go through certain procedures in order to get implemented. Is that your understanding too? That's, that's absolutely right. It's just like the conversation you had on the last meeting about the general plan hazardous plan. This is, it's, a, it's, an, it's a, something that a, a number of cities are working on right now. Um, to try to get vacant units back, you know, into use. And it's, it's a way of discouraging. What you'll see in the language that we publish tomorrow when we publish our current draft, what we're saying is, let's hold some public hearings and try to figure out whether the benefits of this would be worthwhile. Um, we don't know. We haven't, we haven't done any work on it at all. And it's not something that just we do overnight. This is... What we're doing is we're putting something on the table for further discussion. It's my understanding that Oakland already has a vacancy tax. They, uh, they've already implemented that, but I was just curious. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And Selena, thank you. Okay, thank you, board member Curtis. Uh, I don't see any other hands raised. Uh, Andrew, I just had a question on Article 26, and you said that the state has written to the city notifying that we're out of compliance with the direction we need to go in. Did this happen recently, or did this happen at the last time we had a housing element proposed? Uh, or what was the state's position at that time when the last housing element was, was proposed? with the RENA numbers that came out. Yeah, there, the, the first letter we received from the state on this issue was back in 2007, 2006, 2007. Um, then, but state law at that point on housing elements was a lot less defined on the fair housing issue. And frankly, in 2012 and 2014, when we did our housing elements of the state, um, they were concerned about measure A and said it in writing. Um, but really the focus at the end of the day was figure out your sites, meet your number and you're good. And so our whole approach in 2012 and 2014 was we need to amend measure A just enough to meet our numbers. And that was the whole focus. What has changed in state law is the focus on affirmatively furthering fair housing. And then the letter we received in November of 2021, so less than six months ago, is the letter that I just was just quoting from. That's the letter where, you know, the state is coming down 
very clearly on the issue of Article 26 and saying, look, and, and what this means for us and for at least the, the draft housing element that we're recommending here is if, 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 there's, if there are people in Alameda who want to try to preserve Measure A or a portion of Measure A or Measure A for certain neighborhoods, we need to be prepared to explain how we are furthering fair housing by doing that. Um, it's not just about, oh, we just need to amend it enough to get to 5,300 units. And that's what, I mean, there's, a, there's probably out of 135 pages of letters in this packet, you know, 75 pages are saying basically that we don't need to change measure A if we can meet our numbers. And that's why we are adding this new introductory statement and, and, and focusing so much of our public discussion right now on this issue, because I think people are misunderstanding what this issue of furthering fair housing is and how critical it is to our housing element. It's not about the numbers at all. It's about if you're going to prohibit certain kinds of people, people who can't afford a certain kind of housing type, if you're going to prohibit them from a neighborhood or a city, you're not furthering fair housing. You're doing just the opposite. Thank you. Uh, okay, let's open this up for public comments. Uh, if you'd like to speak on this item, please raise your hand. You'll have three minutes to speak. Uh, if we could go to the first speaker, please. Okay, we have Melissa Donahue. Hi, my name is Melissa Donahue. I live in the Wedge, um, and we there's a proposal got something from the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. And we are opposed to, um, you know, doing away with Article 26 and going up to a 60 feet building um, in our area, especially since, you know, it doesn't look like anyone is going to consider parking. Um, I think it's interesting that people think that um, that there will be everyone will use public transportation and that no one will need parking and no one will need to worry about how this is going to affect congestion, how it's going to affect the ability to get in and out of the island. Um, that just because they're gonna be living in affordable housing, they're not gonna want these things like a, a car. Um, if anything, people have two or three cars um, and we're just not making any room for that and parking is gonna be atrocious. Um, also, I can't imagine how it would be for children to live in these very large buildings with not enough outdoor, um, you know, space for them. Um, it's really not a great environment for children. Um, but okay, that is my two cents. I really want you guys to consider this, to consider how this is affecting residents of the neighborhood, how we're going to be able to handle this. Um, I don't know if, if, 
every one of you live in Alameda, if you live in these neighborhoods, and how it will affect our island. I live here, so it matters to me. I'm Thank done. You. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next speaker, please. Okay, we have Betsy Matheson. Thank you. Good evening. Our Alameda neighborhood has a mix of small houses, big houses, houses divided into units, garages converted to cottages, and apartment buildings. It's a dense, diverse, lively neighborhood. Many of our neighborhood's houses and apartment buildings can accommodate more units within their existing walls and roofs. Existing buildings in our historic commercial districts can also accommodate more units and provide more affordable housing. If construction of tall new buildings is allowed in the historic commercial districts, some of our city's favorite places will be turned into sunless wind tunnels and adjacent neighborhoods will languish in shadow. Allowing buildings taller than three stories on our historic commercial streets, whether through zoning codes or density bonuses, is poor city planning. Unlike construction on a large parcel, such as Site A at Alameda Point, construction on scattered small parcels would result in a jack-o'-lantern teeth pattern of tall and short buildings and disruptive ongoing pressure for demolition and replacement of the short buildings. Our housing element and zoning code should not be a free-for-all of upzoning and excessive height limits. Such unnecessary change would promote land speculation and demolition by neglect and provide an incentive for replacement of the existing homes of low-income residents in established neighborhoods. Developers will argue that an existing building stands in the way of an economically feasible new construction project. We will lose not only existing housing, but the sunlight and green spaces that make neighborhoods healthy places, physically and mentally, for all residents, present and future. I urge you to determine the best places for new housing throughout the city and not open up existing neighborhoods and historic commercial districts to destructive land speculation and massive new buildings. Thank you. Thank you. Do have the next speaker, please? Yes, next we have Matt Reed. Hi, thank you uh, for the time. Uh, I have several points to make. I'll try and make them quickly. Uh, first, a bit of housekeeping. Uh, neither the housing element document uh, nor the presentation that Director Thomas just gave were made available in the agenda. Um, I don't know if that's a Brown Act problem, uh, but it's not great hygiene. I, I would request humbly in the future that, uh, that those be included. Um, next thing, uh, for transparency's sake, it would really be great to be able to see the entire letter that was received from the state in November of 21. Uh, that Director Thomas just referred to, the letter in its entirety, uh, as well as any letter that was sent to solicit that, that, that opinion. Uh, was that an unsolicited opinion or was it solicited? Uh, either way, I think the response in its entirety would, at a minimum should be provided. So I respectfully recommend that we ask for that. Um, in terms of uh, the, the actual document itself, uh, the AFFA, uh, that uh, we talked a lot about ARENA in the city council meeting. Uh, AFFA uh, seems to be the, the core of tonight's uh, thrust. 
I got a few things to say about that. Number one, it's not prescriptive. It's not telling you what to do precisely. Uh, it's not giving you numbers. Uh, but number two, it does. It, it is carving out these districts, these high high resource, low resource districts, and it's doing so using old data. Uh, 2010 census data was was one of the primary inputs. I doubt that the information used uh, uh, included, for example, for Alameda Point, any reference to the new market rate homes that have gone up in the last two or three years. Uh, furthermore, uh, Alameda Point is carved out as one giant low resource district, and I think that's absurd. I think that someone should have pushed back somewhere along the way. To, you can't tell me that the old Navy base was a low resource district. So. In other words, when we put housing there, we're not getting credit towards AFFA because, again, what's to be avoided, the bottom line here is that we're not stack all the you know, housing in the low resource districts. That is the thrust of the purpose of the AFFA translated into action. Next, on all of the maps in Appendix D, uh, all the blue dots that appear that, that talk about project areas the city's proposing, all the dots are the same size. Some of those dots represent 800 housing units. Others represent one to five. That seems hardly, uh, hardly reasonable to, to be able to work with. It's very distorting in terms of how, you, how one is to understand what's actually going on. My last point is that this, the, the planning board could do, or the planning commission, or excuse me, the planning office uh, could do a, a lot better in Appendix E. And this would, would help maybe put my concerns at ease if you could just simply do the math and show the projects that are currently proposed and whether or not they accrue units in high resource or low resource districts. What happens in Appendix E is you switch from high and low resources and you start talking about income levels because that is somewhat prescriptive as far as the distribution of high versus low income housing that needs to be built, and that's fine. But map it back to Appendix D because really resource areas is what we're talking about in terms of AFFA. That's the spirit of AFFA. So prove me wrong. Prove me that in fact, your current sites aren't enough to meet the, the spirit of AFFA. So that's why we need to upzone R1 through R6. Again, I, I don't think that's necessary. I agree with, with uh, the uh, AAPS, although I know they have different arguments. I just wanted to present mine here. So thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Next we have Christopher Buckley. Christopher Buckley with Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. I had requested a screen share at the last minute, but maybe it was too late. Uh, if that could be put up, that would be nice. But uh, if not, I'll just I'll just proceed. Um, three points. Uh, we're still concerned that the proposed upzonings will make state density bonus law projects more likely. It looks like you know, staff's taken note of that. It sounds like there's some strategies to address uh, height increases and uh, universal design. Um, standards, uh, waivers, um, but, and we'd like to see those. Um, but we've also come up with an ADU strat strategy, um, which we would like the planning board and staff to consider. Uh, we had sent you a letter from a law firm, Myers and Nave, that we've hired. They're experts on state density bonus law, ADU law, and housing law in general that confirms the legal viability of the alternative. So we ask you to take a serious look at the alternative and maybe have staff provide a written response to it. Uh, and would also like to clarify that our ADU alternative would apply only to the historic portions of Park Street, Webster Street, the stations and targeted residential areas where increased density is really needed, including for fair housing. Uh, we're okay with density bonus projects elsewhere. Uh, second point, um, we're asking you don't do more up zonings now than you really need to. Once you upzone, it's very hard to downzone if you later decide the upzoning was a mistake. And it would not look good to HCD if we walk back in the upzonings that we're presenting in this first draft 
after HCD reviews the first draft. So we need to be careful with this first draft. We shouldn't shoot off all our ammunition at once here. If the HCD asks for more upzoning after its initial three-month review, we can propose more at that time. We have several strategies to um, address to ad address these um, the, to get the arena, including maybe looking at a 10% buffer rather than 20% buffer, and also the ADU count methodology. Uh, the average, the 40, the 50 units, three-year average. We're we, we're really confused by that. It just doesn't make sense, you know, given that regulations have become more liberal in recent years. Uh, finally, um, concerning North Park Street residential areas, previous speaker alluded to, um, this is one of the most historic areas of Alameda. Uh, we attached a report from HAB member Judith Lynch, former HAB member, um, to our letter that describes it in detail. Um, it's proposed unlimited residential density there on every lot. We think that might have just slipped through the cracks because North Park Street was kind of lumped into a special category. And the fact that a lot of it is residential on each side of Park Street was not considered. So we ask you to take it easy there. Maybe keep the existing density or up zone it modestly. Uh, keep the height limits and uh, use the ADU strategy if you want more units. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Next, we have Carmen Reed. Good evening, planning board, members and staff. I greatly appreciate all of your work in reviewing the housing element and would like to add just a few comments. I support maintaining lower height limits in the historic, retain the spare street and stations neighborhoods. Regarding we are geographically small and your connection is not um it's not well as far as we're hearing we're not hearing you well okay um can i try again that's how can you hear me yeah that's much better much better okay great okay thank you um so Regarding the fair housing argument, I appreciate the thought process behind this principle, and I support and I support those general efforts. However, I also think it's important to view this concept within the context of our city, that we are geographically small, and relative inequities are minor in comparison to other much larger cities, presumably with greater and varied equity needs. A designated higher resource area on our local map may be only one or two miles away from a quote unquote low, uh, lower resource area. But the reality is that access to the higher resource is present nonetheless. So the fair housing argument as presented by Mr. Andrew Thomas is not truly an accurate portrayal of what our city faces and the resources that are in fact available to all of our residents. And it is still important to recognize and respect that over 60% of Alameda residents supported maintaining Article 26. And one of the main reasons for that is that Alameda has not adequately addressed the infrastructure needs to get on and off the island. Further increasing the density without properly addressing this is, very, is a very important concern. Um, and without, without addressing it, we are failing our residents. 
So with regards to equity, we do have affordable housing placed throughout the city as many of the older stock units, particularly in Victorians, are much more affordable than new construction. And it's also important to keep in mind that new construction is not regulated by rent control. So that said, I'd like to see the planning department explore including light rail along the main transit routes um, and another tube on the west end that connects to other major transit off the island. These would be great solutions to support the higher density that is, that is currently being proposed. I agree with incentivizing smaller units versus larger units, particularly within existing footprints, but it's still important to retain open space requirements to support both mental health and our existing green environment. And thank you so much for your consideration and your tremendous work on this very important project. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Next speaker is Melissa Donahue, uh, who I believe uh, already spoke on this item. So I just wanted to ask permission. Yes. Um, any other speakers? Uh, she's the last one. Okay. No, I think she's already spoken. So. Okay. Uh, this will close the public comment period for this uh, workshop. Uh, let's move on to board uh, commentary and deliberations. Anyone on the board would like to speak, please raise your hand. Uh, board, member, board member Rothenberg. Uh, th thank you, um, Director Thomas. It's, I, 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 it's really an excellent document and I'm not sure I have anything substantive to add here, although I'm going through it a second time. But I did have one question in regard to your, um, your overview that you gave us that had to do with the um, inclusionary housing. I, I think you said it had it in a bullet. Um, there was a question about changing the percentages for moderate and lower. Mm -hmm such that say it was 7% moderate, 8% lower. And you proposed, you posited to us that on the public that uh, lower is a higher need and, and that moderate might be um, re reduced. And so maybe you told us this before and if, if so, I apologize for not knowing it, but is that, actually, is that actually a fact that moderate is not as high a need as lower? Yeah, I think, um, so just for the benefit of the public, we currently require 15% inclusionary in all market rate projects in Alameda, 25% at Alameda Point. And we're really talking about the 15% for, you know, off Alameda Point. It's the way it's divided right now, 7% moderate, 4% low, and 4% very low. Um, if you read the um, Appendix B, I think it is, the housing um, conditions. Um, it, it talks about our, you know, what the housing needs in Alameda. Um, one of the interesting findings is that because the Bay Area median income is so high, somebody who falls into the median, uh, the a moderate income, I mean, you know, the, it, it, that's a family making over $100,000 a year. Um, 
that family can, and then they look at what's the, what are the median rents in Alameda? Like, what does it cost to a, rent an apartment in Alameda? And it's high, but a moderate income family has a, you know, a, a decent income. And most moderate income families can afford a median rent in Alameda. So there is, and that's, you know, that's a generalization, but that's the thought. Meanwhile, if you read that same appendix, it talks about the huge need and the huge discrepancy between what a, a low-income family can afford and the median rents, and what a, and particularly what a very low-income family can rent. So what we're suggesting, and it's very similar to the vacancy tax. This is not a zoning amendment we have prepared, and we're going to um, ask, you know, council and planning board, thank you, Alan, to, to um, adopt, you know, this year. It's what we're saying is let's talk about it. So a family of four, what Alan is showing you there, um, family of four, moderate income, that means they make up to $150,000 a year. Um, that family can rent relatively comfortably a, 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 a just a market rate housing unit in Alameda, if you look at the median rents. Um, so what we're suggesting is we start having some conversations, just like we need to discuss the vacancy tax concept. We're not sure it's a good idea. We're just saying, hey, this is something we should be looking at. Maybe we need to, instead of doing 7% moderate, 4% very low, 4% low, maybe that those, those percentages are off. Maybe we should be doing 6 percent very low, 6% low and 2% and moderate or something like that, because the real need is in those lower income. But it doesn't have a filter. Again, I, I don't know exactly how the um, criteria work, but it doesn't have a filter for, say, seniors, for example. Seniors, I mean, a family, you can make a broad social and economic assumptions about the constitution of a family unit, but you know, you might assume, for example, that a family has an earner or two, but very old seniors, the likelihood of their working is probably low. And so um, I guess I'm asking the question, inclusionary housing has that criteria, that's one filter for income and number of persons in the household without consideration of another filter for, for example, seniors, disabled veterans, and the other categories that you've clearly enumerated throughout the document in terms of equitable uh, housing availability. Well, what we, what we do know is there's a huge need for small, affordable housing units um, for very low and low income seniors, veterans, um, you know, people on fixed income. Um, so there's absolutely, we, we know there's a huge need for that. Um, and so look, this is, it's just something that's, you know, uh, looking at the data, hearing what people are saying, listen, reading through the letters, it, it made us think, hey, this is something, you know, the May, the April 4th housing element just doesn't even, didn't say anything about it at all. And we're like, wait, no, we need to at least put this on the table for conversation. It's not like the discussion of the height where we're like, no, 
you know, we need to make some decisions right now about height limits. This is one of those things like the vacancy tax. We're saying, hey, this is, this is, we're putting this on the table for discussion at a later date. This is something we need to be talking about over the next eight years. Um, it's not something um, that we need to make a decision on this year. Thank you. Thank you, Board Member Rothenberg. Uh, Board Member Cisneros. Thank you for the presentation. Um, I'm really excited about this draft housing element. So just huge thanks to the team um, for this product. Um, I look forward to the next version. Um, on this point, on um, the inclusionary zoning requirement being revisited, um, I know that there's a bill that's looking to um, program ELI tracking into the, um, I forgot what it's called, the APR and maybe even like an amend arena. So it's like actually being tracked. So I do wonder, um, maybe not necessarily as part of the inclusionary zoning program, but you know, what are some other ways that we could incentivize um, ELI housing production? I, I do wonder what cities maybe have been able to successfully do that. So that's just a question. And so they, I think that would be helpful um, for us to think about it may, maybe have reflected in the draft housing element. Um, and then a, a broader point um, to goal number three, ending and preventing homelessness. Uh, I brought this up before, but I think it's, um, worth repeating uh, where uh, that is a broad goal. And when it comes to especially preventing homelessness, uh, we can do a lot with that when it comes to housing. Like that's like a big part of the equation. But the other part is um, the other half to that is addressing uh, stagnating wages. Like they're there isn't really a pipeline for those earning 30% AMI or less. There's not that many job opportunities. There's a stagnant wages. So these are more of like the economic, the lack of economic opportunities uh, for this population. And, and so I just do feel like that's worth um, mentioning that we could address income in the sense of vouchers, advocating for more vouchers or housing subsidies and that maybe fits in this housing element framework, mm -hmm. but there's parts of it that are not necessarily being reflected in that goal. And I may, I do wonder if it's maybe a little too simplistic just to say, and to prevent homelessness, but just housing when it's like more complicated than that. So I, I'm, I'm fine with keeping it as is, but I just, I just wanted to name that. Um, we, did, and, we did receive some comments on that. And I think we are, hmm. are gonna to try to work that concept into the policy statements that it's really, there's two sides to this coin, especially when dealing right. with homelessness. And yeah. it's, as you know, from our other elements in the general plan, I mean, we very often, like you read the transportation element and there's some stuff about land use in there and mm -hmm. you read, so it's okay to sort of get out of that, that silo mm -hmm. and recognize in these policies. Like, look, there's, there's many sides there's multiple facets that have to be addressed if we're, especially on the issue of homelessness, which is such a difficult 
problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. De- definitely. So, um, yeah, I would, yeah, I would appreciate that maybe just being refined a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I think this is my last comment, but related to, um, the changes on Webster street with the setback, um, you said there's already, I, I forgot what you said, like a 10 foot setback on the rear. And then you were asking for a 15 in the front. I just would like to make sure that works for developers like that. This is technically not a historic district. So I just don't want to impose unnecessary barriers if we don't need to. So um, I, I would just would appreciate having that check before things are finalized. Um, and yeah, I think those are my general comments, but again, this is, this is great, so thank you. Thank you, and I may just, oh, go ahead, uh, Alan. Uh, okay. Board Member Cisneros, thank you, Andrew. Um, I was just gonna say, uh, thank you for bringing up the uh, ELI issue, because- um, it, Alan, it, why don't you just tell everybody what ELI? Yes, I was gonna explain, extremely ELI stands income. for extremely low income, so not even, it's, it's below the very low income, 30% of um, average median income, and, you know, in some communities, the the demand for these highly subsidized affordable units is such that, you know, you actually have to look at a whole separate category of the you know households that are making extremely low income. Um, I know San Jose tracks ELI. Um, I worked on their housing element in two thousand seven, and that was already a category. I believe uh, Dublin also has um, started. Uh, tracking part of their demographics under the ELI program. It, it is important. It's a reflection of, you know, that there are households and people in the community with that severe need. So um, question is why hasn't that really been established as a mainstream? And just last point on the inclusionary housing and those percentages. As a city, we set those percentages in 2003 when we adopted our inclusionary housing ordinance originally, and we haven't we haven't really done a serious look. Every year we sort of talk about it a little bit, but we haven't really questioned whether those percentages are still right, whether the moderate, and what this conversation is sort of, I think, contributing to is, I think on one hand, there's a question, do we really need 7% for moderate? On the other hand, we got nothing for extremely low. <laughs> like, do it is our scale sort of right or do we need to make adjustments and that's really what we're that's really all we're saying is mm-hmm. we're, we're getting indications that we might want to be studying this a little bit more and really having a, a larger community conversation like the vacancy tax there may be downsides we may study it and decide not to change anything but you know we probably should We've been using these percentages for 20 years and a lot has changed in 20 years. So we should probably spend a little time in the next few years. Right, a developer, it, yeah. studying it. a developer subsidy for an extremely low income unit is much more than uh, their subsidies right. for moderate income. So that curve, understanding that curve, how that works, how that works in Alameda, how, you know, whether we need to reach that deepest level of affordability is, is something we definitely should do. Yeah, and I think uh, San Francisco a while ago had like some kind of like dial-up inclusionary program where uh, I think there was like some flexibility and I'm going to describe it totally wrong, but it was like 
um, a, a lower number for very deep affordable housing units, but they could opt into less um, higher um, AMI number of units. I'll, write, I'll try to research it and send the information to you, but um, I, I think I remember them looking into something like that. So I, I think the point is like, we can maybe get creative. <laughs> Thank you. Those are all my comments. Thank you. Uh, Vice President Ruiz. You're muted. Oh, you're, you're muted. Thank you staff and members of the public for um, providing input. I think I've given very detailed comments last time, so I'll keep my really brief. Um, first of all, I want to start by um, a question for city attorney. I know that uh, one of the members of the public mentioned that the housing element was not part of the agenda, but I was not included as part of the material that was distributed. But I did see that a link that was included in the um, staff report. Does that suffice and meet the Brown Act requirements? because th that this is the same information and it was provided the same format as the previous agenda item where the, the mitigation plan was in, in link and you can click on the link to access the information. I don't believe there is a Brown Act violation. No, the item being discussed this evening was um, noticed in the title. I believe like you said, the materials are linked in the staff report. So uh, the public, and the, the planning board members should have all the information um, necessary to understand what was being discussed this evening. Thank you, thank you. Um, and then um, another um, comment about um, some of the community members. Um, I just that, that mentioned that um, maybe we don't live on the island. Um, just wanna clarify that all of the planning board members are members of this community we live in, on this island, so we understand the issues, and that's part of the requirements of being on, on the planning board member, um, on the planning board. Um, so, a few comments that I think we should—that's very helpful—that we should consider is the connectivity between Alameda and um, Oakland, as well as between Bay Farm and um, and the main island. And I know that you have included that because we have brought discussed that earlier. So continue to evaluate that. Again, just clarifying for members of the public, you know, these are just policies. These are not actual verbiage of um, zoning code amendments. This is just a housing element. Um, so there will be come there will be time when we'll actually be reviewing the, the zoning code and amended verbatim. So with that said, that's all the comments I have. Thank you. Um, board Member T. I'd like to thank all of the staff and public for speaking on this. And uh, I'm going to start with the easy one first, which is inclusionary housing, uh, which I have spoken about our distribution for probably the last six or seven years. Uh, that our breakdown of numbers is not good. And, you know, in a weird way, Measure A has contributed to the amount of housing we've developed because by doing one more percentage, they get around Measure A. So we will be doing 16% instead of 15 because they needed that extra 1%. It should have been 2% instead of 1%. And we should be reducing that number so that they only have to, they have to add 2% to get that extra 
uh, density bonus issue. If we were to increase the lower number, then by default, they're gonna automatically opt into a much higher density bonus. And so we'd actually have less housing. It'd be lower income, which is good, but we would have fewer numbers because we'd only have 15% instead of 16 or 17, if that's what it would take for them to get that, you know, that extra 1% to get the extra bonus that's provided by meeting that low income. Uh, so that's my comment in terms of the inclusionary housing percentages. We need to really look at it carefully in order to encourage that extra percentage of development. So I'm not looking for an answer to this, what I'm about to talk about. Um, HCD's letter of November 29th, I think it probably is attached to one of our agendas. I don't know which one. And the entire letter is um, actually quite confusing. In the beginning, they do say exactly the words that uh, Director Thomas says. And then they have a section that says, here are your options for complying with state law. It says, Measure A's provisions are in conflict with state law and should be voided. It doesn't say is voided said should be voided. As far as I know, voiding requires a judicial decree. We haven't had that. I haven't seen us preemptively go to a judge and say, hey, HCD says this is it. Would you give us a ruling saying, no, uh, measure A is gone, done. We haven't done that. I don't know if we can. We should, if that's the case. We tried voiding it by a vote of the citizens. We know what happened with that. They said, no, we don't want to void it. The state has given us a tool where the city council can void it. We haven't done that. We haven't gone to the city council and said, hey, go on record saying you are either for or against measure A. It's politically not a good thing for them to do because 60% said, I don't want to get rid of it, but we haven't taken it to the city council to override it. I don't know why, probably because it's unlikely we're actually going to get four votes. But what we would get is the council members going on record as to where they stand officially. It can be voided by specific state law that says, you know, you can't say that, period. Um, it's a little frustrating dealing with the city attorney's office. Uh, they're doing what they're doing, but when we say, is this preempted by state law, the answer you get is, yes, if it's preempted by state law. That, that doesn't help us, because that means we have to decide, is it preempted? I, I, that's why I hire lawyers. So that leaves me in a spot where I don't know what to do. You know, I'm feeling... Like I would, if I were on city council, I would be voting to overturn measure A. I don't wanna be on city council, never do. So what I look at is, okay, what else did they say? They said, we have to demonstrate, demonstrate adequate sites to accommodate our arena, possibly rezoning at appropriate densities similar to the multifamily overlay used previously. Okay, we can do that. Additionally, additional actions to address constraints on housing and affirmatively further fair housing. You know, that's really the 
the key here, which is how are we going to demonstrate uh, fair housing? You know, and I look at it and I go, I, I don't have someone telling me, yes, absolutely. Measure A has been fully preempted. Just go ahead and ignore it. Um, so my feeling is we should be doing what is needed and just sufficient to comply with state housing law. The densities that are currently in the housing element are far beyond that. I, I, the, the numbers are way higher than what is just sufficient. And so I, I can't support it at this point. Uh, I want to, I really want to. And if someone can say, yes, measure A is preempted, I would go with it, but I can't. So that's where I am. Thank you. I just. Yeah, uh, Director Thomas. I just, for the record, staff disagrees. We, we will, if <laughs> you, what, what the board member said is that if we adopt this housing element, we will far exceed 5,300 units in eight years. Staff does not agree. We will if be you multiply very the number, the density. By the parcels, what number do you end up with? So I haven't seen that number. If you'd like to provide it, I would love it. We if think you would we also can like get... to talk to the city attorney and get them to actually give us a judgment, I would really like that. The, the housing element appendix E says exactly how many numbers we project will happen as a result of these rezonings. And it is enough to get the arena plus the 10% to 15% buffer. I just, for the record, staff does not believe that we're going to get significantly more than than the six thousand units that we need to get. Um, we had, we changed the zoning in Alameda and for all of our R one district to allow four units per lot, and we did that in January. We haven't gotten a single application yet. Now we hopefully we will. Um, we changed the zoning for every residential project in a parcel in Alameda to allow two additional ADUs in 2017, we get 50 units a year at most. Six, seven, one year we got 79, last year we got 79. So um, changing the zoning the way we're talking about does not just all of a sudden result in thousands of units coming in the door. And that's the challenge. 5,300 units in eight years. To be honest, we could say we eliminate all density on the island. What's going to get built? We have no idea. The cost to build is so high that it is going to be difficult for us to even get the number built that we want to get built. So, but that's not my I problem. Agree. Andrew, you know what my problem is. My problem is I can't get a legal opinion that confirms that I can ignore Measure A. Do you think That's it's fair? Do you think it's fair to say that if you can't afford two thousand square feet of land and you can't afford to live in a single-family home, that you shouldn't be allowed to live in this neighborhood? I mean, does that I, you feel know right? I, you to know, you? I believe that all of the R district should be able to allow to have four units, regardless of the size of the parcel. You know that I believe that. I don't say you have to have 2000 square feet. That is a misrepresentation. Well, that's what measure A says. Am I saying I support measure A? 
I am not. I'm saying it is under our city charter. And I have yet to have a strong legal thing say, yes, board members, you may ignore measure A. And that's what I'm looking for. And I would love to have it. So, you know, go to city council, get them to do it. Approach a judge, get them to do it. Something, please. Well, that's where this process ends is with the city council, either adopting this housing element. That's not the same as using the state law that says we are explicitly throwing out that section of the charter as allowed by state law. You know, being explicit, be explicit. Well, every one of the, I mean, just for the benefit of the public, I mean, every single one of the zoning amendments that we have proposed starts off with a statement right at the front. This is inconsistent with our Article 26, and we're doing it to meet our regional housing needs. So at the end of the day, that's what it's coming down to. And we have to, we have to, we have a two part test. One, are we, will these zoning changes generate the number of units we need in eight years? And number two, are we affirmatively taking meaningful actions to reduce this discriminatory effect of our past land use regulations. We feel like we've and met and number those three tests. Could we do less? I think that's, that's at the end of the day, the, the question like, can we go to the state and say, hey, we wanna preserve measure A in certain areas, which no, is what not, a lot I, of people I, I are am saying. Not, not saying. you, not, not you but a lot of the letters that you're hearing. The, yeah, I, I don't you know, change the zoning in the R districts. Yeah, it, I, I feel like rock and hard place here. <laughs> and it's, and because of how my mentality works, which I have some very literal aspects to my personality, which is not neurotypical, makes it very difficult for me to have to deal with this. And I'm sorry that it came out fairly blunt tonight, but that's unfortunately where I am. Because totally I love almost everything else about the whole plan. I really do. I like all of the changes regarding anything not related to the density and the multifamily, of which there is a tremendous amount. I mean, we focus on this little area, but there's this much of all this other stuff, which is amazing stuff. So thank you for having all of that. And thank you for the straight talk. Okay, thank you, board member T. I, I guess just to follow up a little bit with that, um, well, there are a couple, couple things that I had to say. Uh, well, first, I, I think this is great that there's the forum in order to uh, further discuss with the public what is happening. Uh, appreciate Andrew also taking the time over the weekend and I guess a few more talks, Andrew, that you're going to do for the public. I, I was able to attend the one at Coffee Cultures this past Saturday. Uh, and I think it was very good that you could interact directly with the folks that were there and um, did a really good job in describing the opportunities and challenges that are faced with um, navigating this, uh, this housing element and state law. 
and uh, what's being asked of us uh, specific to um, updating our, our, um, our housing element and our general plan. So I, I think that um, what board member Teague cited is, is pretty critical in just our own uh, way of navigating the scenario that we are trying to correct. And it seems very clear that there's a few different strategies one can take and, and, and strategies that have been taken that haven't quite worked. And so outside of, uh, you know, continuing every um, zoning update with the fact that we're in conflict with the general plan in article 26, that there does need to be this clear uh, statement that I think we need to continue to put towards the folks who can make this change occur. If it's, if, you know, if one avenue has been taken, it hasn't worked. Other avenues have to be, I think, taken because it is conflicting to continue to do this way of um, operation <laughs> of saying, we're gonna do this, but we're in conflict with this. We're gonna do this, but we're in conflict with this. So um, I think reducing the friction and getting to a place where, and, and, and I, I get that it, it's going to take more uh, potentially challenging uh, methods to, to get to where we need to go. But I believe that through the global picture of what the housing element does, along with um, the other facets that have been worked on on the zoning side, uh, that there does need to be continuing clarity provided to the public that this is this is why this it's critical to make this change. And I think that you, you did a very good job on Saturday describing it to the public as well, like the history of why we, we are here where we are. Um, the other challenges that other jurisdictions have faced when they were fighting this situation, which I think is very helpful for people to continue to understand. And that there's, a, there's limited roadmaps in order to get to where we need to be. Um, and I thought that it was also good that you described the current situation and we can't anticipate the future. We don't know what that's gonna hold as far as how the arena numbers come and, and where the state goes, but there are trend lines and there is this major um, position that we're in where the state is looking to add a lot of units because of the housing crisis that we are in within the state. And of course, based on what actually transpires, th there'll be an evaluation of that in eight years. What happened? And then based on what happened, there's gonna be then either a reconfiguration of what needs to happen <laughs> next time, whether it's more or less, um, you know, it, it will really depend on what happens now. And so I think everyone is, which is, which makes sense. And the public is very focused at the moment. Uh, I also think that in the context, there's 
what's going to continue to happen and how do we create a long-term roadmap and future that we all can believe is sustainable as a community and how we develop because really that's what we're after. And, and I think the other important notion that you stated, um, which, which I think everyone should keep in mind, I know we, we talked about it briefly here, is that this is not a one-off thing. It's a parallel track with the way that we deal with transportation uh, is connected to housing. It's not disconnected. And I think it's clear that um, the planning group at the city is looking at that as in parallel. It's not ever one thing or the other. So there's multiple things that are being looked at in parallel. And uh, in order for us to, again, create a sustainable method of developing, you know, that is critical. And and, and I would recommend um, potentially in future workshops to, to bring some of that parallel activity to the forefront. So it's not just focused on the housing element, but mm-hmm. it can say that, look, this housing element, this is how it impacts transportation. This is how we're looking at zoning and this is what it means for how we're looking at transportation. Because the more that you connect the dots, I think the more that the public will appreciate that these, these things are not running independent of each other. So that, that would be my recommendation in, in future workshops. Uh, just because there's so much work going on behind the scenes it would be good to make sure that that is clear for, for the public's benefit. No, I appreciate those comments. Um, it was refreshing to be able to just talk with a group of whatever it was, 25 people um, about all those things. Um, and I thought it was the most successful workshop we've had in a couple of years. I mean, just a better forum than trying to do it in a 10 minute PowerPoint um, and to really just be able to interact I mean, sort of like we're doing now as a group, but. Um, yeah, no, I think yeah. it was very it's, good. It's, so it, we're going to do, I think the next one's May 29th. And I think it's at, um, out at the golf, out at the golf course. Uh-huh. We're going to do, course, a couple, yeah. do a couple in West Alameda next after that in June. Right. Oh, you did an excellent job. And I would recommend that definitely in this forum and other forums, um, we continue to promote the talks that you're doing outside of just this yep. uh, planning board meeting. Okay. Uh, I think th- th- those are all my comments. Great. All right. Well, in your next packet, we'll have the, for and for the benefit of the public, we'll have all of the strikeout underlying changes for the housing element. Um, and you can all see the specific language. Uh, and then we hope to get it off to HCD at the end of the, end of the month. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Shall we um, move on to the next item, which are our minutes? Um, item 8A. Actually, President, President, oh, um, okay. since it's past 1030 under your okay. bylaws, that would be considered new items. Okay. Um, but we could skip ahead to staff communications. Yeah, let's let's do that. Thank you for a reminder on the. So we will continue those minutes to the next hearing. To the next hearing, yes. Okay, staff communications. We already moved nine C up to the front, so we've done that. Nine A planning, building, and transportation actions, decisions. Any anything to 
report there. No. Nothing uh, remarkable. Routine applications. Okay. Um, okay, oral report, uh, future meetings, upcoming. Uh, also, nothing really notable, just uh, continuing to uh, work with the board on um, the housing element and um, over the summer uh, zoning amendments that will we'll probably expect that to be on your agenda consistently but we'll okay. Andrew and I will regroup after the meeting and, and see um, what what we would present at the next meeting great great uh, oh yeah board member Cisneros yeah I just want to confirm um, is there the housing element subcommittee meeting this Thursday uh, this Thursday, yes, we're going to discuss that and uh, we'll notify the, the three of you. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay. Uh, written communications, I believe we've received everything. And it's been, I guess, during this meeting, we've got another email or two. Uh, board communications, board members may ask uh, any questions or clarifications or make brief announcements on their activities. Uh, board member T. Yeah. Uh Alan, when you bring back the minutes, can you elaborate on Andrew's answer to what no net loss means? Okay, I'll make a note. You say he answered that. it, but you don't say what. So it okay. would be good to have it in the agenda, in the minutes. Thanks. All right, I'll pass that message on. Thank you. Okay, any other board communications? No, okay. Um, oral communications, uh, anyone may address the board on a topic not on the agenda uh, by submitting, uh, well, by raising your hand. Um, sorry, I don't mean to raise my hand. I'm looking if anyone <laughs> raised their hand. Uh, is there, I, I don't believe anyone's raised their hand. So we'll, we'll close that item. Okay, we're, we're adjourned. Thank you, everyone, for staying late. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thanks. Good night. Take care. Hi, everybody. Hi.